I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to today's podcast recorded live at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. My name is Justin Hamilton and I'm still laughing my ass off right here on Big Squid. Welcome to the podcast where today I have two guests, starting with my old pal, comedian and Gold Logie winner, Tom Gleeson. We've been friends for two decades and have a love of old Australian movies, so today we're going to review the Peter Weir classic, The Year of Living Dangerously. This movie stars Mel Gibson when he was once great, (laughs) Sigourney Weaver, who is still great, and an Oscar-winning performance by Linda Hunt. If you haven't heard of this movie, I hope it inspires you to check it out. And if maybe you've seen this film and haven't seen it for a while, so maybe you will go and check it out again. After Tom, we have comedian Rachel Melanta with her regular segment spin-off. Rachel is living in Canada at the moment, so we'll hear what the Canadians think about the US election. Four seasons total landscaping. Just what a great moment. So we'll hear about Rachel's thoughts uh, living in Canada, about everything that went down in the US over the weekend. And we will also get into Rachel's love of Fleetwood Mac's Rumours album and the idea of working with an ex-partner as you're breaking up. A quick reminder that we have the Big Squid Live FOMUS show on December 13. You can see us live at Giant Dwarf in Surrey Hills or you can stream us live into the comfort of your own home or wherever that place may be. Maybe it's not your home. Maybe you want to stream it into the bar that you work or on your phone while you're heading somewhere. I don't know, but you can stream it wherever you are. The magic of technology. 
So if you're like us and you prefer the holiday season to be about Baby Yoda rather than Baby Jesus, this will be the show for you. Guests include Rove McManus explaining what makes a perfect Doctor Who Christmas special, Georgia Mooney singing songs uh, that Carols by Candlelight would reject, Richard Feidler sharing the secret origin of Father Christmas, Ben Elwood and Alex Jay sharing the movies you should watch to send the relatives home, and Cal Wilson's friend Adele will be checking in from deep lockdown in Melbourne. Don't worry, we've tried to tell her she can leave the house. That lockdown doesn't exist there anymore, but she refuses to believe us. She will still use technology to beam in from her home. So if you'd like to join us for the show, you can find more details at giantdwarf.com.au. Before I bring Tom in, if you're new to the podcast, I'd like to share with you that this is a place where my friends and I discuss the different types of art and entertainment that we love, that inspire us, that elucidate extreme emotions, and and any podcast can range from a review of a Christopher Nolan movie to a review of a graphic novel to the latest album we've listened to. And this podcast is no different. Tom and I love Australian movies, and we decided... If we're going to discuss one, let's go back to 1982 to a lost classic. It's directed by the brilliant Peter Weir, and we follow journalist Guy Hamilton, played by Mel Gibson, unfortunately, no relationship. The Hamilton part, not so much the Gibson. We follow journalist Guy Hamilton arriving in Jakarta, Indonesia, and struggling to make contacts for his job. He forms a friendship with a photographer, Billy Kwan, who is played by Linda Hunt, who becomes a conduit to British diplomat Jewel Bryant, Sigourney Weaver. Bryant falls for Hamilton and she gives him key information about an approaching communist uprising. As the city becomes more dangerous, Hamilton stays to pursue the story, regardless of the threats he must face. This is the year of living dangerously. Hamilton, guy. Occupation, journalist. Jakarta, first assignment as foreign correspondent. A reporter on the way in. You're an enemy here, Hamilton, like all Westerners. I felt sorry for you. Dumped in your first posting without contacts. Adrift, hoping to bluff your way through. But you won't. Guy Hamilton, right? Right. Billy Kwan. I did a lot of film work for Potter. Bryant, Gillian Edith. Occupation, assistant to military attaché. An insider on the way out. Oh, three weeks. To what? Till I go home. Where's that? London. Had enough of the tropics, eh? I've been on the move five years. I'd like to go someplace and stay. So it begins. Uh, before I get into any of the, you know, the hard-hitting questions for this uh, podcast, is the greatest tragedy that Australia's ever endured Mel Gibson? Because <laughs> it's yes. like, he's so... <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, because it's like... He's so good. He, he's such a great actor and he's so yeah. good at... I mean, are you allowed to enjoy his work? Right. It's always a tricky one. It's Bill Cosby situation, isn't it? Yeah. But a bit different, though, because it's like, well, he's apologised for his actions. Mm. And so, I don't know. If he, I guess if he's not racist anymore, we're allowed to 
enjoy his work, but some people are... When people say racist things, people, I guess, think that they're racist forever. Right. So if he's racist forever, then I guess it's a problem. But I think for the purposes of this chat, let's presume that he's not racist anymore. Right. So okay. we, so we can so really we can, enjoy it. So we can just talk about it. We can talk about the 80s and old Mel. Yeah. And built into that is the idea that he might have been racist, yeah. but he's no longer racist anymore. Yeah. Okay. He's rehabilitated. He's rehabilitated. For the sake of this podcast. <laughs> so that we can talk about the movie and um, pretend that he's not racist anymore. Exactly. Uh, so I'm curious, as the movie follows a group of foreign correspondents in Jakarta in 1965 on the eve of the attempted coup by the 30 September movement, which was an attempted coup to overthrow President Sukarno, who, due to his anti-imperialist ideology, made Indonesia increasingly dependent on the Soviet Union and particularly China. Uh, how much of this story did you know before you saw the movie? Well, I saw it first in the 80s when it came yeah. out. Oh, no, it would have been on videotape because it was back when we got a VHS and we used to get a lot of um, uh, pirated VHSs and one of them was right. The Year of Living Dangerously. Yep. And for me... You've got to cast your mind back, all the way back to the early 80s. There was no lethal weapon. That no. hadn't happened yet. Even the bounty hadn't happened yet. He was making the bounty when this was released. And yeah. when he went to Cairns, he had to leave the bounty. Yes. So, for my older sisters mm. and her cousins, when we used to go on holidays on summer, they all loved Mel Gibson. He was a heartthrob. But they but they felt like, this is back when they just thought, this is, there's this great Australian actor. Yeah. Uh, and they knew him from Mad Max and Gallipoli, pretty yeah. much. That's all they knew. And then this came out, and it was like they saw it because he was in it. Yeah. And I think that the historical context and all that meant nothing. I just knew he was in a new film, and uh, and I and, and so I didn't really like it the first time. I thought it was interesting, but I didn't get it because yeah. I was a uh, yeah early. T- I was probably thirteen or something like that. Yeah. Mad Max, I understood. Gallipoli, I understood. And then I'm like, the year of living dangerously, oh, this sounds great, sounds exciting. Yeah. And watched it and thought, I don't really know what this is about. There are a few moments. So my memories of it from when I was a kid are really, really just basic. Right, yeah, the same with me, actually. Mum got somehow, uh, you know, there used to be uh, competitions where they do uh, the movie premieres and, and the general public could win tickets now. I think because of everyone being so connected, <laughs> they're not giving out free tickets. Everyone's yeah. knows somebody. But Mum had somehow won free tickets to the premiere in Adelaide of this film, and right. I saw. So I was, I reckon I was nine or ten, and loved Mel Gibson from uh, specifically Gallipoli. Yeah, and I stood at like when he walked past, I re- I reached out and touched his neck. And oh. it, was, it was a big experience at the age of nine. Yeah, well, it was. It was kind of felt like Australia's first movie star, and For like a I while. said, because he hadn't gone to Hollywood yet. Yeah. But that was back when you could have an Australian movie star, like a yes. Jack Thompson or a yep. Brian Brown, or where they could be considered movie stars, but they hadn't made it in Hollywood yet. Yeah. In fact, you didn't expect them, that that was ever going to happen. So and- when that happened, you're like, oh, I guess that makes sense. We kind of like them. I guess America can like them as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And I think because Sigourney Weaver was in this, uh, suddenly it was like she's a big star as well. And it felt a little bit like at the time a coronation maybe for him. Yeah, yeah. Being associated with a proper Hollywood star. And and also it was this is sort of Peter Weir, the director, sort of getting towards 
uh, yeah, big time Hollywood films. Like yeah. it was, I don't know if Holly, I guess Hollywood would have backed this film. Maybe I think they. Uh, it's it was like one of the first kind of movies to have uh, part Hollywood backing to the extent that when there were problems in Indonesia when they were filming it, mm. they, you know, the White House was getting reports and there was a little bit of do you want to continue making the movie? You know, so yeah. they had a, uh, a stake in it. And then also, I think it was one of the first movies that brought up the lifelong now debate, what's an Australian movie? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but Bill was, Gibson's a US citizen, yeah, all that. Yeah. 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 But I think this I think this paves a way for Peter Weir to make things like Green Card and Dead Poets Society and, yeah. and Witness, essentially, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I'm under the impression that Gallipoli was widely watched in Hollywood. Yes. Like, to the point where if you watch Saving Private Ryan, there are scenes in that, there are shots in that that I reckon Steven Spielberg stole from Gallipoli. Yeah, right. Like when they're swimming around in the water and the shrapnel zips through oh, the water, yes. I think that that I think that shot and though that that special effect seems to I reckon he seemed to have taken that hole. Yeah, I mean it's a beach landing. Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, I just quickly looked up. Uh, he, Peter Weir makes Witness straight after this with Harrison Ford. Yeah, there so, you go. Uh, the I, American Mel Gibson, the American, <laughs> as we've always <laughs> called him. <laughs> the uh, I. That's interesting about Gallipoli. I saw an American writer on Twitter literally a couple of days ago say, someone asked him, what are your favourite war movies? And two of them were Gallipoli and Breaker Moran. Yeah, right. And uh, there was a little moment of, ah, yeah. I felt pride. I was really excited by that. Yeah, well, Spielberg's definitely aware of Australian cinema because this is a very distant memory of mine. I haven't looked it up, so I, I hope it's true. But there used to be the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles or yes. something like that. Yes. And I think in one of those, they actually used footage from the Light Horseman. Oh, right. The Light Horseman movie that came out. And it's like they yep. must have bought the footage because they used some of the action shots from that and then just spliced it in with, it turns out it wasn't the, the Light Horseman, <laughs> Bathsheba, it was Indy. Right. <laughs> young Indy coming, <laughs> running through and solving all this. He, he went full Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah, he was. So somehow it's the same story or something, but little right. young Indiana Jones was in the middle doing it all. Oh, that's so funny. I think it was called The Adventures of Indiana Jones or yeah. something. I don't know. Yeah, it was Chronicles a TV show. I, re- yeah. I remember there was there was an episode where Harrison Ford made a cameo as the older Indy, and it was like that was back in a time when there were TV stars and there were movie stars, and they did not cross. No. And so to have him do a little cameo as Indiana Jones was mind-blowing yeah so what's he doing <laughs> and suddenly this tv show is much better than i ever gave it credit for yeah uh i was also like you when i saw the movie i it's it's funny isn't it it's it's re, it's a real grown-ups movie so yeah something that isn't often made anymore and it, it had a had a pretty big budget for an australian movie and when i watched it i was quite confused by a lot of uh, the politics of what was going on and I have to say, and I'm, I'm curious to know what you think with this, I don't quite know a lot of the history of Indonesia and I wonder, where do you think Australia stands in their general knowledge in that regard? Pretty bad. Yeah. I have looked it up because of this movie. Yes. And also because I've spent a lot of time in Bali over the years. I've kind of, I, whenever I travel someplace, I like looking up the history of the place. I just yeah. kind of, I don't know, it just gives you a bit of a feel for the place. Yeah. And so in Bali, there is a... There is a tourist attraction in the middle there. It's called Sukarno's uh, Summer Palace or something right. like that. And that's where Sukarno, the uh, president at the time, used to go on his holidays. 
So I thought, well, who this who's this Sicano guy? So Sicano was supplanted by Sahato. Yeah. And so the movie is based around the events of that. And the only other really things I know about it in just it's pretty broad my knowledge of it is that it was a time it was a coup of sorts. Mm. The military took over. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure Sahato had some relationship to the military. Yeah. Sicano was a I think he was a dictator as well. I don't think he was particularly democratically elected, but I I could be wrong on that. Well, he was kind of anti-imperialist as well and was kind of being funded by yeah. the communist side. That's right. And that's right. Now, now you've sort of reminded me, yeah, because then the other part that I know is that there's this massive purge that goes on where Sahato and uh, and that whole um, regime yeah. just gives people free range to kill people on the suspicion that they're communists. Yeah. And as I understand it, there's a it's like there are just tens of thousands, it might even be more than that, that are killed, and and people are just killed because they're communist or suspected to be communist. Yeah. People are killed because they owed other people money. People are killed because you know what I wouldn't mind having their house. So if we kill them, we can just go and get their house. Yeah. And I've always really, I was going to say enjoyed, which is sort of sounds wrong, but it's like I've always liked it because I've, it's something that I've always thought when I've been in Bali, up in the mountains in Ubud, sipping on a Mai Tai, and I'll casually say to my wife, in the 60s, there would have been bodies floating down this river. Oh, like, yeah. Like it's like the, there's a violence in Indonesia's recent past yes. that tourists just seem to forget. Yeah. And, it's, and, and when you read into it, and it's just on our doorstep. You're like, oh, how can we not know about this? This is huge. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt a bit. I, I felt a bit embarrassed yeah. rewatching this movie and having to do like yeah. just not being able to do total recall on all of the events. Yes, and but also that's part of the pleasure of watching the movie. Right, is it's a way of learning about that historical context because. You know, the the Vietnam War, you've heard that story over and over again. Yes. You know, World War One, Gallipoli, we've mentioned D-Day, World War Two. These are stories that get told, even Kokoda gets told over and over and over again. Suddenly you're watching Australians getting stranded in Jakarta. Yeah. It's the 60s. Things aren't going well. You're not quite sure why. They're in mortal danger. They need to get out. Like, they need to get out of the country quick, smart. You're like... It's an exciting film to watch because you don't quite know who the baddies are. Right. But I enjoyed all that about it. And, you know, there's even a, a point in the movie where, uh, and it's it's such a small moment as well, but Noel Ferrier's character, uh, uh, Wally O'Sullivan, who's a journalist, is quite clearly having a relationship with one of the young men there. And from the moment, uh, I think uh, the character, Billy Kwan, sees it and his his reaction is, well, I better pack my bags and leave because that's now what's... Like, if I stay, I'm in trouble. Yeah, yeah, I'm one of the ones who are going to be turfed out. Yeah, and uh, and, and, and it all, it's, it's, it's a really subtle moment. It's just um, he kind of reaches and touches him intimately on the back of the neck and that's all you see and then you immediately know what's going on yeah. and that uh, once everyone finds out... Yeah, because it was the 80s and so it was like that... By the way, everyone, that was gayness... Oh yeah, that was 1982. But you don't. If you're a homophobe, yeah. you can still enjoy the movie, right? <laughs> and if you're a racist, well, you're really going to enjoy it because the main actor is uh, on your team. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so it's just it's sliding cases of morals. Yeah, it's uh, this is what you literally call a movie with broad appeal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of people enjoying it for very different reasons. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is, and I'm thinking about current day uh, politics. Uh, Sahato ends up taking over the leadership of the country with the support of the CIA, who yes. go in to help a corrupt 
country do because with... it's better than being communist, right? Yeah, essentially, yeah. we'll back we'll back Sahado because at least it won't be a communist country. Yeah, yeah. So, with that in mind, should we invade America to help <laughs> liberate them from everything that's going on? Like, isn't that what they do? Should we all just be well? Yeah. We better go and invade America. Well, <laughs> strictly speaking, no, because they're not communist, and that's the worst thing you could possibly be. But. So they're as far away from communism as you can possibly get. So right. America would be like, no, nah, this... In fact, America would back their own... If if, if America was a foreign current country, right. they'd back in Donald Trump because they're like, right. he's a dictator, but we can live with it. Right. So in a way, it kind of it kind of suits... It makes them consistent historically. I guess he's just in the back pocket of Putin, but he's not communist. He's not communist, yeah. yeah. But it's, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a tyrant. Right. But it's better than the country being communist. At least uh, business can still occur. <laughs> That's how it works. It's exactly how all their it works. interventions in South America were all based yeah. around that. It's uh, it re- it resembles capitalism. So we'll back this guy. Yeah, it makes for a, it, the movie has that really interesting blend of quite clearly the communist influence, but then you know you have the American journalist who's living like a capitalist in that yeah. world, isn't he? Well, I think he represents in the movie all of America. Yeah. So he's kind of represents all that's bad about America's foreign intervention. Like he, he's just, he, I mean, he, as a symbol, he's he's there to, ex, he's literally exploiting the local populace for his oh. own pleasure. And I think he's, yeah, he's he's a metaphor. He, uh, that's the uh, actor, Michael Murphy, who's one of those classic, that guy. Yeah. Actors. yeah. Well, uh, I've seen him before. Yeah. yeah in, in so much, like he's been making, I looked up, he's, his first movie he made was like 67 and his last film, like he's 82 now and he's, yeah. the last movie he made was 2018 and he and it's consistent all the way through. Uh, I was going to get to this question later, but I'm curious. Um, have you met foreign journalists like that in the past? Because you've uh, toured uh, with the army and performed for the troops and stuff like that. Oh, the, that expat world that's mm. represented in the movie yeah. reminds me. I mean, there's a lot that I get out of the movie. One thing I enjoy is my uh, wife... Spent a lot of time in Bali growing up. Right. And also her um, parents are, are friends with Peter Weir. Peter Weir was part of their social circle in Sydney. Oh, God. I can't, so, I can't believe, like, we, what? Like, so, that is amazing. So, in a way, when I watch the film, I'm imagining my in-laws in Sydney in the 80s and yeah. the worlds and the social world that they lived in and that a friend of theirs was out making this film and probably coming home and talking about it yeah. or at parties and talking about it. But also, uh, my in-laws also spent a lot of time in Bali in the 80s. So, I know Bali's not Jakarta, but right. it's Indonesia. Yeah. But so, the, the Indonesia that's that they're shooting in, they're actually shooting in... 80s Indonesia, even though it's based in the 60s. So part of me is like, I'm kind of romanticizing that Indonesia, the Indone- the Indonesia before Wi-Fi and before, yeah. you know, back when you needed traveler's checks and right, like it was actually felt more exotic. Whereas as opposed to you just feel like you're, you might as well, it's it's just as easy as getting to as a Westfield Mall or something like that. Yeah, you know, sure. present conditions. You know, forgetting that. Yeah. So part of it, I enjoy that part of it, but also the expat part of it. Those expats who are still holding on to their own lives in that area reminds me a lot of some of the comedy gigs I used to do in Singapore. And again, I know Singapore's not Indonesia, but just the the expats that have spent so long there that they um, are treating the locals. They're, they're, they're the new imperialists. They're happily... Right. I remember I did a gig in um, Singapore and, and these two guys who used to run it, their names were John and Kerry. And uh, 
they were Kerry was just he would just sit outside in like our fresco dining areas and uh he would whistle to get the waiter's attention. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, God. And it was just like, it was, that was just no problem. It would always make me start. You know, yeah. And you're like, oi, boss, come over here. And like, and they'd, and they'd come over attentively. And I remember this guy walked up and he just, he just, can you go down to the, just go down to the shops, get me some cigarettes. <laughs> Right. So a waiter at a restaurant would just have to walk four blocks down the road to get this guy's cigarettes and come back. Right. And I guess he tips everyone and that, in his own mind, that makes it all okay. But but the whistling at stuff, I could oh. never quite get over. But just the way he had supplanted himself from England from maybe a fairly mid-tier position to making himself the king of this new place that he was at. The Yeah, I, that's something even... It reminds me of that time, just those yeah. overweight, sweaty white people in the oh, tropics. Yeah. You know, who are barely coping with living but still somehow have popped themselves at the top of the tree. This is a really sweaty movie too. Yeah, like it's, everyone it's, is sweating. It. Yeah, I know. I love watching it. <laughs> the uh by the way, when you did that whistle then I immediately had a flashback to suburban yeah. childhood. Yeah. All guys used to be able to whistle yeah. like that. Oi, get over here. <laughs> oh, I saw someone do a tweet the other day. They said I, I think we should bring Oi back. Like that, you. Someone was. It was a. It was a right. younger comedian. I can't remember who it was. I said we need to bring Oi back, and I was like, I've said Oi about ten times today to my kids. <laughs> what do you mean bring it back? It's never been gone in from my life. I've had someone say Oi to me, or I've said Oi to someone every day of my life. Like, I'm Forty six. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's been chock a block full of Oi, Oi. Sorry, sorry. Oi, pick up your clothes. This is this is when you know the pandemic's gone <laughs> yeah. absolutely insane when people are holding oh up banners. Bring back oi. I was imagining it in a yeah, a younger person's accent. Yeah, we should bring oi back. Like ironically. <laughs> what do you mean? It just it's still there. <laughs> it's never been gone. It's never left. It's like Mel Gibson's racism. It's always been there. It's just there. It's just there. Just right. But it's there. gone now. But it's gone. For the purposes of this discussion. Thank you. I appreciate it for the podcast. I appreciate it, Mel, if yeah. you're listening. I think he listens. Yeah. The oh, So I've got to tell you why I rewatched it. Oh, yes, that's right. I forgot that uh, yeah. before we started recording, you said that you'd, by chance, when I mentioned watching this film yes. for the podcast, you had rewatched it at the end of last year. Yes. So one of the contestants on Hard Quiz, mm. one of the things we learnt about her in the show was... Back in the 80s, she'd driven Mel Gibson around on an airbase in Richmond during the production of The Year of Living Dangerously. Oh, right. So I was looking at her, imagining what she, how, you know, about how old she was. I would say she was in, she's probably in her 60s, right. thereabouts. So I was picturing her, oh, yeah. And, and then I asked her about it. Yeah. And she was, she was in charge of wrangling all the extras. And then, right. And then when I watched, so, so I had it in my head. So I thought I should rewatch the film. Yeah. So I rewatched, and when I was watching, I'm like, "Oh, that'd be an airbase in Richmond. That's not. That's clearly not in Indonesia. All right. those scenes where they've got airplanes landing and stuff, and yep. they just shoot it in Western Sydney, essentially. And she would have been in charge of just driving Mel Gibson to and from set. So I rewatched it, noticing that location. And then the other thing I noticed watching the film, which I'd completely forgotten about, which was one of the other reasons I'd watched it as a kid, was there's a scene where they're at a pool, yeah, and they're drinking G and Ts, yeah. And it's where I think Mel Gibson's character meets um, the Colonel Sigourney Weaver's yeah. character for the first time, or it's yeah. their first date. And Bill Kerr, the Colonel's character, the who co- is yeah. her boss, yeah. who we also know from Gallipoli, yeah. 
uh, what do you like? Steel Springs <laughs> and all that. Yeah. What's this? G and T. How are you going to drink it? Down the neck. Anyway. <laughs> but they're having that. <laughs> you know, they're ha- they're having that sort of hanging out in that expat world. Yeah, yeah. And they're poolside, and there's people coming and going. They're having cocktails. Yeah. That scene was shot at the pool of my high school. Oh, really? And I'd completely forgotten it. And I'm watching it. I'm like. Oh, my God. And because they only just used the corner of our pool. Right. At my old school in Sydney because they're out at Richmond Air Base. Yeah. They're shooting at the pool and they've just put up some umbrella. And it was so weird because I'm looking at it and I'm like, this would have been shot in 1982. And I'm looking at Sigourney Weaver and Mel Gibson and Bill Kerr sitting around having, I guess, pretend G&Ts. I guess they're probably lemonades with lemon in them. Doing these scene and it all looks so exotic and fantastic. I'm like... I had so much misery on that lawn just five years after that. <laughs> being dacked, dunked in the water, being pushed off the high diving board. Just that whole and right. I was just like and it's and it's so strange. Like it's they're actually that that scene, which is about being overseas and exotic and freedom, was shot at a boarding school where all of that didn't exist. You couldn't go anywhere. The you only, never ran into anyone interesting. Yeah. There was nothing exotic about it. It was full right. of white people. The good the good thing about that story is that they weren't there. It was five years early and they weren't there to see you get dacked. No. <laughs> Imagine if it... I got dacked and then it was oh, like Sigourney I... Weaver saw my butt. But oh. <laughs> I'd be devastated. Oh, man, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. what a what a strange thing to be witnessing. And yeah. then... So then, so that was... Thinking all the way back to summer holidays, yeah. My older sisters and 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 my cousins—they're all teenage girls. Oh my god! This like a you know this movie. It's it's Mel Gibson's new. I love his blue eyes. Can't wait to watch it. Yeah. Hope he's not racist. Anyway, <laughs> so that's the mode they're in. What I'm talking about? It's early eighties. We don't care. Um, but the other tit bit was always oh, and it was always. Someone would chime in. Oh, you won't. You may not know this, but there's a scene in there that was shot at, shot at, yeah. uh, you know, at the school that you're going to go to. Yeah, that's like, cool. Oh, and then yeah, and then it's a short scene, and you're like, oh, was that it? That was it. Yeah. And did uh, did the contestant on Hard Quiz have any interesting Mel stories for you? Well, she did, she didn't really have that much to say, but she was mostly yeah wrangling um, wrangling extras, and used to have to drive him to and. Uh, I, I can't really remember what, what the banter was about on the show, but I can almost guarantee it. I said, how did you get on with his views or something like yeah. that? I, I think I called them racist views because on the ABC, the lawyer, the lawyers would get upset by that because yeah. I think that would be defamatory. But anyway, I think I said, so ha, did, did he have any, did he have to tolerate any of his interesting views? Yeah. And she was uh, equally as um, evasive yeah. as you'd expect someone to be on national TV. Yeah, probably a, probably a smart move. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, I was do, doing research for this uh, chat. There was really interesting stories because he was, really breaking big and there there was a story about when they were in Cairns and they're at dinner a French woman just walked up and I forget who was saying it but the French woman just walked up and tapped him on the shoulder and when he turned around she grabbed him by the back of his head and just stuck his her tongue in his this guy's words like six inches down his throat and then just pulled back and Mel was just stunned and didn't know what to do and then just Turned back around and continued eating dinner. Yeah, and, and they were talking, and all the, all the reports were how lovely he was and how polite he was, and how mm. it was kind of freaking him out what was happening 
around him. Yeah. I also, when I watch the film too, sometimes I want to get my bearings. Mm. I think, where are they up to in their career? Yeah. What was life like? For some reason, the whole world of the movie. I was talking to this woman, it being shot at my old school, just sort of Peter Weir being in my in-law's social set. I'm sort of yeah fantasizing about that whole world and, and what's going on. So I don't know why I always become really obsessed by how old people are when they've done things. Yeah. So I looked it up, and I'm pretty sure Mel Gibson was 29. Oh no, I think he was 26. Oh right, even yeah. younger. Yeah. yeah, and maybe maybe Sigourney was 29. Yeah, I think that was it. But yeah. I watched them, and they look so grown up. Maybe it's because I was young at the time when I watched the film. But I look back at these films, and I'm like, I can't believe that they were, you know, 20 years younger than me. I find that a little bit amazing. I still as think well. of them as grown ups. Right. Yeah. No, I I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Because, and I don't know. If I have some disassociative view of what I look like or what people look like today, but they they kind of look like to me people in their forties. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's but I think it's because when you watched it, like I would have been, you know, early high school. You know, I was really I was probably I can't remember eleven or whatever it was back that time. So they were definitely grown ups. Yeah, and so then as you get in your twenties and you remember the film. You picture them as in their forties, yeah, and yeah. I've started to realise that romantic leads, female and male, in my head, they're always probably in their early thirties to early forties in this thing. Yeah, you know, just I don't really think about it, and then I look it up, and sometimes they're twenty-two, and you're like, what? Or other times you look them up, and they're like fifty-eight, and you're like, yeah. what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they fall outside that sort of where you think they might be. Yeah, because I think it's how old you think the character is. Rather right. than the actor. And right. then you find out the actor's age and you're like, oh, that's not quite what I expected. Sigourney Weaver was around 32, 33. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, so the standout performance is uh, Linda Hunt as Billy Kwan. Uh, Billy is idealistic and possessive. He's also cunning, uh, but constantly coming up against forces that are just outside of his control. And I wonder, do you think a woman playing a man gives the character a slightly different air about him if it had just been played by a man? And does it kind of help with the adoration that Billy has for Gibson's character and also kind of the love for Weaver's character as well? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I almost feel that when I saw it, I had no idea that the character was played by a woman. I had no idea. Like, mum... And I don't think it was... I feel like back back then, it wasn't the kind of time when, they'd, when that would be part of the promotion. Right. It, like, I feel like behind the scenes and the way the film was made, that came much later when they used to promote films that way. Oh, you'll... You know, you know when they... You know, you know like, when Monster comes out, they'd spend all this time talking about how long Charlize Theron would spend in makeup. Oh, yeah. Looking, and that would all come out before you saw the film. Yeah. I feel like back then you'd watch a film and you, all the magic would work and then when they won an award later you'd be like, oh, I had no idea that was a woman and then that would be part of the reveal. Well, I think you had to be like mum definitely knew because... Uh, you'd be in the know, I guess. There's yeah. no E! News or E! Entertainment Tonight type stuff. No, and I think, you, you know, you had to look for stuff a little bit harder, you know, like in Adelaide it would have been Anne Wills doing yeah. her movie show so maybe she would have said something but... Uh, when I told mum that we were going to be talking about this, she, I could not, when I saw the premiere, could not 
get my head around that it was uh, a woman playing the character. I was so convinced it was a man. Yeah, and I mean, then you've got the additional thing, which is uh, looked down upon now, but also a non-Asian playing an Asian. Okay, let's hang on. Hold so there's that. some levels there which I quite enjoy because yeah. it's a woman playing an Asian man, yeah, but uh, she's non-Asian. So, so, but she doesn't really dress up as Asian. No, like it's not no. like they, they don't use like uh, prosthetics for eyes and stuff like that. No, which no, is obviously no. Seen as a bit of a no-no. Yeah, absolutely. So actually. We'll get back to the character of Billy in a sec, but so my follow-up question was, so Billy Kwan is half Asian, half European, and has the condition of dwarfism, and... So it's a lot to hide behind in terms of, there's a lot of ambiguity there. Yes. In terms of being able to pin someone down as to what they should or shouldn't look like. Yes, and so, you know, it's it's funny, in light of the current age, is it is this still a progressive move to hire the best possible person for the job who just happens to be a woman or taking into account the heritage and the condition is it now seen as missing the mark do you know what i mean like yeah, it's fascinating yeah. to to me it's it's what equality is you pick the person who's best for the role yeah and so well yeah it's an interesting one because yeah you're picking the best person for a role but also in that sense encouraging diversity because uh, the actor is a dwarf. Right. So to some degree, that's like, that's a minority. And then right. also, in a weird way, you're giving a man's role to a woman. Right. <laughs> so, so, you're, so you're advancing a feminist agenda. You're right. And, it, and maybe Mel Gibson should have been played by a woman as well. Right. You know, <laughs> his character. If you know, the Guy B- Hamilton should have been played by... Lindy Hamilton <laughs> from Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the um, you know, it makes me laugh. The uh, imagine the 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 people that got angry about Mad Max Fury Road having a strong female character, they would probably lose their minds if they found out. Oh, look back in nineteen eighty two, men missing out on jobs for short women. Yeah, That's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one, but I mean, I I kind of feel like, uh, I mean. I'm a white man, so you've got to discount everything I say. But I feel like if the role works for everyone who gets to watch it, then it works. Yes, right. So if you were if you were Asian and you watched it and you didn't think, hang on, that person's not Asian, if that did happen, if that dragged you out of the film, then that is a problem. Right. But if, if uh, the actor looked ambiguous enough as to you couldn't quite pick where they were from, yeah. so you're, you're willing to think that they were half half Indonesian, half English. Is that Half European. Half yeah. European as described. And, if, and even European, what does that mean? You know? Right. So if that was enough that you're like, well, and you just bought it, then that's fine. And she's so good it. as and well. And she's great. Well, she won an Oscar, yeah. Yeah, her performance is... It's funny, isn't it? Like the, the poster is Mel Gibson with a bare chest looking sweaty and in the background is the suggestion of the love affair. But it's... For the most part, it's Billy Kwan's story, the, yeah. the narration, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a phenomenal performance because she's always uh, she's always on the run, she's always making things happen. She's kind of Billy's tough, but also mm. gets the heart broken really yeah. easily yeah. as well. Well, I feel like Billy, you, you said she, so the character oh, yeah. he, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. is um, 
the thing I like about Billy is Billy is an idealist. Yes. And it just keeps getting chipped away at constantly. Yeah. So Billy believes the best in people, even under this extreme circumstance, and just constantly is being let down by humanity. Yes. And Billy believes in humanity prevailing above all else and just it constantly doesn't quite work out. And it's and that's and I agree, it's the emotional spine to the whole film. And then Sigourney Weaver and Mel Gibson's character, their romance and all the rest of it, that's that's all your big Hollywood stuff. Right. But all of that would it would be a pretty nothing film without that with that central story running yeah. through it. It's in, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Mel Gibson's character in a sec, but uh, in many ways it's it's the way that Guy Hamilton, uh, his character, no relation, uh, that's how he kind of grows up, isn't it? Because he has that moment where he has to juggle his priorities as a journalist who has been left in the lurch as well. Like the guy who was meant to help him out has already gone and just left him to find his own way. He's trying to fit in amongst these journos who already have their cliques and aren't yeah. helping him. Then Billy does the right thing by him and then you know, he ends up in a situation where he kind of breaks trust to certain extents. Yeah. Well, I also... Because he's still trying to advance his career. And the thing I like about Guy Hamilton, uh, the character, is that he comes over to Indonesia as... This is his big break, and you feel that in the film. Like, he he has to make a mark. And he he files a few stories that are real nothing stories. Yeah. And they're just not really happening. Um, But part of it... Part of it that I enjoyed too is so simple is I like when he's doing his broadcasts and oh. he's recording and he's putting on the ABC announcer's voice. Yes. So it's like, hello, this is Guy Hamilton reporting and that weird sort of voice they used to do. Yeah. But the other funny part I like, and it's such a slight thing and it take, and it's and I reckon, oh, I don't know, Peter Weir probably doesn't give a shit about this stuff, but I like one thing that lets the film down, it's such a simple, dumb thing, is that for some reason, they haven't called it the ABC, oh. probably because of the legal reasons. Yes. It's clear that he works for the ABC. Yes. But they've called it the ABN. Yes. And in modern, like, uh-huh. ABN is like, is your business number, Australian yeah. business number. So every time he says, you know, this is Guy Hamilton for ABN, you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you're broadcasting from a tax return? What are yeah. you doing? It doesn't sound right. <laughs> but also ABC is such a, ABC is such a, an amazing brand. Yeah. You would just it would help you buy into the story. Like, I don't know if if in another movie if there was a BBC journalist, I'd just be a BBC journalist. They would right. call them a BBA journalist. It just it takes you out of it slightly. I I was going to ask you why do you think do you oh, think it would have been lawyers? Been? It would have right. been it would have been something to do with it. It was probably something to do with the the fact that it was a government broadcaster, and right. if you said that, you'd be saying that. It would have been a law. It would have been a yeah. lawyer thing, guaranteed. It, it, that's why they a, change things in movies all the time. Because it's a fictional story, and therefore you can't be implying that any of this is true. But it's yeah, funny. it would be implying that the ABC, yeah, uh, did an expose yeah. on that situation, and maybe I don't know, might, might have been a diplomatic thing. Who knows? Well, you know, they did. Uh, the, the movie wasn't shown in uh, Indonesia for a long time, actually. It was, which is interesting because it doesn't. I don't feel like it packs a massive political punch. No, I feel like it's just saying these are these people's lives lived against the backdrop of this historic situation. But obviously, it's still a very sensitive issue in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. Well, it well, was it's the breakdown of society, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't think it really shows. Uh, 
you know, the Australians to be in that greater light. No, either. No, exactly. It, it's not like a, he's the Australian hero who comes in and saves the day. I think everyone right. comes off with a bit of shit on their shoe. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a perfect way of describing it. Um, but uh, the the uh, Billy Kwan is kind of almost like the thing that he's the person that makes Guy Hamilton grow up. And so, sort of see beyond himself a little bit. I, I did enjoy his uh, accent when he would uh, put it on. Yeah, uh, and and he was a little bit too earnest. And it's funny because his performance is so beautifully subtle and layered. And then when he's on radio, it's like this guy's trying a bit too hard. Yeah, and also, it, yeah, he's not very good at it. Yeah, it's sort of. I thought it was quite a good observation because when yeah. he sits in front of the microphone and he tries to do his broadcast back to Australia, yeah, you're like. It reminds you that people do broadcast. They don't just talk into a microphone. Like when right. you, if you're a journalist, like if you watch the ABC News or any news, like there's a there's a news tone that people have that has authority, and he's trying to do that, but he's not doing it particularly well. Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> just not, a bit too not very good at it. It's uh, it's like uh, you know, when you work with a, an inexperienced comedian who hasn't done it like radio before and they're having a nice chat and you've seen them on stage and they're really funny and then you turn on the mics and it's like, whoa, hey, whoa, what's happening here? Yeah. Slow down. <laughs> Everything's good. Uh, where, where do you rate this movie in the Mel Gibson filmography? Do, do you have a do you have a favourite? Uh, I put this up high. Yeah, I really, well, there, I, think it, I think we're hitting a very similar feel for the both of us. There's yeah. a, there's a nostalgia to it. Yes. So there's this there's this Australian cinema in the eighties that was, you know, Breaker Moran, all you know, all those films that we know about that and that were fantastic. And so I view them as I picture these films, I remember them being a faded poster on the side of the milk bar wall that would say now showing at Nelson Bay Twin Cinema. Right. You know, and you'd go and see them. So and you know, and so, it, but also for me, these films sit amongst Star Wars and Jaws and yeah. all those films of around ET and all around that time. So when I come back and watch them, I, I'm sort of remembering that time and part of the nostalgia is the reason why I enjoy them. So to me, I still group this with uh, the Bounty, which I watched recently too, right? And it's really good. And, and I thought that his performance up. in that was extraordinary. Yeah, right. And. Lethal Weapon I always enjoyed as a lark, but I don't think that's my favourite performances of his. Uh, that's Because uh, it feels like it could have been done by anyone. Yeah. Yeah. If they didn't get him to do it, Tom Hanks probably could have done it and he would have gotten the same kudos for doing it. Because it's, it's, a, it's a vehicle, that movie. Yeah. Whoever you put in the driver's seat, they'll, they'll drive off and become a star. It's no big deal. It's... Um, but yeah, I like... I reckon Gallipoli's right up there. Um and the bounty I really like, and to me it sits between the two. It's funny. It, I feel like, the, and this is using a little bit of hindsight to say this, but Lethal Weapon does feel like the beginning of... The Mel racism. Gibson. <laughs> yes, well, Mel Gibson, I was about to say, Mel Gibson loses his accent, his Australian accent, yeah. and becomes like, you know, you know there's the... The, the conspiracy theory that Paul McCartney died and they replaced him with another Paul McCartney. Yeah. If if I found out that the original Mel Gibson had died while making Lethal Weapon, they quickly replaced him with another Mel Gibson, I'd be like, A, that makes a lot of sense, and B, oh, that's good, because now I can yeah. just mourn the other Mel properly. But it's funny, though, his, his accent does... It does sort of... Like, the bounty is... 
it's not. Well, he's playing Fletcher Christian, mm. so he's playing an Englishman. Yeah, but it's like, I, I, like when I remember him in films, I just picture Mel Gibson talking. I don't really think about. They talk about the Mid Atlantic accent. Yeah, but I, I mean, maybe when you watch Gallipoli, he does sound that little bit more Australian. He probably just leans on a bit, but it's never right. like he had a twang. I feel like there is literally one scene that comes to mind that he has that essential Aussie suburban twang, and it's in Mad Max 2 when he says, three days ago I saw a vehicle that could all that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I- I, I put this up there with. Uh, I, I still think, I think Gallipoli's a masterpiece. So yeah, I, I, but, but I would put also, that up there I, with it. But also, I feel like Mel Gibson. I don't think he was a huge part of that being a masterpiece. I think he's part of it, but I think he's everything about that. Movie. Everything about the film, and I feel like he's he's a big part of it, but he's not the only bit. No, no, he probably um, yeah, you know, like Mark Lee is just as good as. Mel Gibson maybe even a little bit better, you know? Well, Mark Lee, as I understand it, was very inexperienced. Yeah. But that played beautifully on screen. Yeah. So there was Mel Gibson's character was the more experienced guy who had knew about the world and was probably, his character was probably 21 or 20. Yeah. And then there's Mark Lee's character who's 17 and yeah. having to pretend to be 18 or whatever. So and naive, well. naive, you know, yeah. Bunny in the headlights. Yeah. There's that great scene when they're trying to, where they get drunk and they're trying to paint uh, glue yeah. hair to him so he looks older. Um, what about Peter Weir? I don't feel like Peter Weir has ever made a bad movie. And uh, where do you rate this amongst? Oh, I think it's... Yeah, Peter Weir is like... I reckon you're right. Every single fi- film of his I like. I think I've seen every film of his. Maybe I haven't seen The Cars at 8 Paris, which right. I think is one of his first ones. But, I mean, Master and that Commander is, is a great film. Yeah, I love that film, and I always feel like that was Gladiator on water, and it never quite got the attention it deserved. Right, but that was, and you know, Russell, <laughs> Gladiator on water, it is too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, Russell Crowe was a new Mel Gibson. You know, yeah. it's like you know, there's the stories of him smoking the same cigarettes to get the same sounding voice, and yes. sometimes you close your eyes and you're like, oh yeah, Russell yeah. Crowe, Mel Gibson had a very similar, and then Sam Worthington, and then did Sam Worthington the, copied the that same kind yeah. of uh, voice. One thing I liked about the film, which you haven't mentioned yet, mm. is um, the love scene when they finally hook up and there's a song that starts. Oh, yeah. And it really takes you to that time and place. It's by a guy called Vangelis. Vangelis, yeah. Vangelis, sorry, yeah. yeah. Or Vangelis, yeah. some people say. Or Vangelis. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Vangelis. But the song that they play, it's interesting. I looked it up because I because it really resonated, and it and it took me to the time that I first saw the film. Like it was, it was just one of those songs that I hadn't heard since I'd last watched the film. So it just took me right back, and I thought, wow, this sounds a lot like Chariots of Fire. So I looked it up, and sure enough, Vangelis did Chariots of Fire. Yeah, but the song that they used in this film dates to the seventies. Yeah, so it predates the Chariots of Fire theme, which was written for that film. And it sounds quite similar. It's got the, it's got the, um, the droning sound of the synthesizer, the, 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 yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. And then a, and then a melodic piano hook that goes over the top of it. And it made, it made me think Peter Will, Peter Weir had watched Chariots of Fire. Right. And thought, fuck you. 
Thank you. <laughs> Vangelis. You've reminded me of a song that I liked way before I saw Chariots of Fire <laughs> called L'Enfant or saying Infant. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly From that 70s film. Going. And it's probably yeah. a film that he always liked and probably got the rights to it. But it also reminds me of the, you know, in, in Gallipoli when they run across the desert and it's yes. by a group called Oxygen or something. Yeah. That, that, again, the techno song. Yeah. So it's again, it's like synthesizer and techno going with Indonesia in the 60s or matched with uh, Australia in 1914, 15. It, yeah. It doesn't belong, but it works. Yeah. But the thing that grabbed me the most when I watched it the second time was I think the entire song plays, and it's about a three minute song. Right. With the love scene, and I was thinking the love scene runs as long as the song, and it's the song that propels the scene. Yes. So I reckon that if they just hooked up and there was no music, visually you could only sustain that scene for probably a minute because right. plot-wise you're like, oh, I get it, they're together. Yeah. And then, sure, you might go, oh, that's a bit tantalising or romantic, so that gives you another 30 seconds, let's be honest. Right. And then you're like, oh, and, and so, oh, and that was romantic, and then you transition to the next scene. Yeah. But the music that plays through it, makes that scene go for a full three minutes. Yeah. And it makes it a real emotional turning point. Right, yeah. That's a really good point. And it's, um, yeah, but it was a treat listening to it because I was like, I haven't heard this song since I watched this on a videotape. Right. On holidays in 1983 or four or whenever it was. It's interesting the uh, the, the, the types of music that uh, uh, Peter Weir throws into his movies. Like, yeah. it, like Witness also has kind of... You know, like in that in that incredible scene where the Amish are building the house, yes, and that music is electronic and yeah, you, it's 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 interesting the way his head works, where he brings all these disparate types of uh, entertainment and puts them together, and you go, I don't know how you did that, but it worked. Yeah, and so I was asking my wife about it. I'm like, Vangelis, like, if you, and she's like, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, I remember this, and I'm like. Oh, of course, because her parents hung out with Peter Weir and they would have had the same albums. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're having a dinner party, you know, North Shore of Sydney in the late 70s. I just put on a bit of Angelus. Yeah. It's my favourite song. <laughs> <laughs> Probably all started making out for about three minutes exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the song's finished. Oh, well, that was fun. Uh, I um, When it comes to his films, the like I'm a big fan of... Of Witness, I rewatched Witness recently, mm. uh, but you know the movie that was his first Hollywood film. I that think was his, wasn't it? Yeah. Proper Hollywood yeah. film. Yeah, he goes Witness, then he goes The Mosquito Coast, which didn't do very well, but is a great film. People just didn't want Harrison Ford not being indie, yeah, or a hero, or even John Book in Witness. You That's know, right. like, uh, yeah. but it's an amazing performance. But it's back in a time when no, we want our actors to be. Kind of the same actor all the time. Yeah, well, John Book in Witness was yeah. kind of his... I mean, there was Blade Runner, but Blade Runner was a pretty out-there film after yeah. Indiana Jones and yeah. Han Solo. And also a, a box office failure. Witness? No, uh, Blade, Blade Runner. Yeah, but yeah. then Witness came along did really well. Yeah. And that was the very beginning of him as the the ordinary man action star. Yeah. Where you saw it. Yeah. yeah. Where he was playing a contemporary character and then obviously went on to do Patriot Games and all that. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but... um. Mosquito Coast was he was a little bit oh he's unhinged yes. with with River Phoenix as his son you know and it's really it's really traumatic it's a traumatic film but yeah. it's great and so Peter Weir makes that and then he makes Dead Poet Society and fucking knocks it out of the park follows it up with a Green Card which is also a, a massive hit but then he follows it up after that oh, 
two movies after that is The Truman Show, but right in between is one of my favourite, favourite films of his that I can only watch at specific times, and you'll know immediately why. Fearless with Jeff Bridges, yes. which I can only watch when I have no way of catching a flight anytime soon. Yes, yes. <laughs> the... I didn't know he made that film. I, I oh, didn't yeah. Know. Yeah, I haven't researched him that heavily, but I, I've sort of kept... I, whenever it says directed by Peter Weir, yeah. that was always, oh, I should see this, because it would always... I like the fact that the films don't necessarily seem connected as well. Oh. Often, you know, like, you know, what's Mastering Commander got in common with Fearless? Not much. Right, But yeah. then you... Um, and the the, tr- I, I didn't know he did that film. Oh, have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, I, oh, I, yeah. I've seen it once back right. when it came out. Yeah, so yeah. I, I should watch it again. One of the uh, one of the great Jeff Bridges performances. Uh, he's like magnificent in it, and it's before he, it's just before he becomes the dude, and then there seems to be a lot of dudism in his subsequent roles. Yes. He, even in Crazy Heart, he's kind of still oh, it's, it's serious dude. Yeah, it's like the dude's. Uh, yeah, this is what happens when the dude has a real to play music and has a real alcohol problem. Yeah, <laughs> um, I reckon uh, when Sigourney Weaver turns up in this film, even now, decades later, you still immediately go, "There's a movie star," and yeah. and it's really noticeable. And how do you think uh, Mel does opposite her, considering she's established? And he's the the new guy. Yeah, I think it's a very assured performance, and I yeah. think that I think part of the pleasure of watching this film is remembering where Mel Gibson was in his career, and yeah, that, yeah, that he hadn't quite made the leap to Hollywood yet, and had done Gallipoli and Mad Max one and two, yeah, which was turned into Road Warrior, so that was probably also a bit of an in for him, yeah, in Hollywood, yeah. But but even so, like. Mad Max and, and, and Mad Max 2, it's still kind of... They're kind of a Western. Yes. And when you look at Westerns like Clint Eastwood, you, I've always thought they're easy roles to play. All you have right. to do is walk into a scene, look mysterious and say one word and leave. Like, it's yeah. not... It doesn't really show much range. I think that... I think... I, I mean, I'm not an actor, but I'm under the impression that actors probably see those roles as not difficult, which right. is probably why those kinds of roles don't win Oscars because they're pretty easy to do. You're just the... You're, you're the thing that the whole film's hung around. Yeah, you have to have an intangible sense of presence. Yes. Because... Yeah, which is yeah, which is sort of hard to measure. But yeah. like, you know, with Clint Eastwood, yeah, you just walk into a scene, squint, smoke yeah. something, walk away. You go. Shoot somebody and then say, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's 10 minutes of film. Yeah. But, but I think it... that all started with Steve McQueen in Bullet who yeah. notoriously went through the script and just said, with a pen, just saying, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying yeah. that, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that. Yeah. Don't need to. Yeah, don't need to say anything. Yeah. So then it would have been a step up for him as a role as well, I'm thinking, in terms of being the male lead. Because he yeah. wasn't really the lead in Gallipoli. No, that's Mark Lee, isn't yeah, it? That's yeah, that's right. But he, here he is a romantic lead in a proper drama. Yeah. So he would have been. he would have been absolutely... You know, jumping at the chance to show off his skills, I'm guessing, and I, I think they come across as a match, and I think people would watch it and probably not give it a second thought. But then, when you realise that Sigourney Weaver is older, yeah, and more experienced, and an actual star at the time, you're like, oh yeah, okay, that would have been a bit of a thrill. You know, the thing that you notice the most with, you know, there's lots of good performances and like, and there's different types of performances, but the thing that really stands out with Weaver is there's a, um, there's a stillness to her, isn't there? Like, there's it's like I don't think she moves a finger without 
there being a reason for that happening. Yeah, and the character's great too. She's aloof yeah. and she's in control. And you're not quite sure what she's doing. Yeah. She doesn't just go, she doesn't just go, oh, she doesn't just fall for him straight away. But it's also not um, a cliche of that, the unattainable person who finally gives in. It's sort of, it's somewhere in the middle. No. Well, they they literally are the two best looking people in the movie. So yeah. they had to find each other eventually. But, but, the- but, you feel, but also <laughs> the feeling at first is she doesn't really want to hook up because... They're in a situation where people come and go and she's about to go. She's about to go. Also, there's a really funny scene. Like, there's two scenes back-to-back with her and Gibson where she kind of hangs shit on his work. Oh, it's a bit emotional, isn't it? Like, yeah, And, and yeah. really kind of pricks his confidence. But also, and then, but also revealed to have a bit of an agenda. Yes. A reason to say that. Yeah. And I then, think isn't she kind of trying to just gently push him away from the story that he's following? And a, and a little bit of just kind of keeping him in his place and yeah. and kind of disencouraging him from being into her. But then mm. it's a, it's funny the reverse of that scene is the next one where they're together and he's essentially uses it as a way in. Yeah. Well, I guess you were right about that. And then she has to be a little bit on the back foot. Well, you know, yeah. But I was just saying that you know, and it's just it's just really beautifully written and and acted. But it is a. Uh, it, it's it's also just great. You know, you see Sigourney Weaver in so many big movies now. You know, or you think of her, you think of her in big movies, and it's to see her in an Australian movie is really exciting when she yeah. arrives. Um. So with that in uh, mind, oh, in, so when they first meet, Gibson's character loses a swimming race to the older uh, Englishman, the Colonel. Yeah, in my school pool. In your school pool. Where I, where I used to do swimming carnivals yeah. and lose. And lose. Yeah, so that uh, I could really relate to that bit. Yeah. Well, I remember you, losing in that pool. You Well, you were just emulating uh, non-racist Mel Gibson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a really interesting scene. What do you think that says about the character that he's willing to let yeah. that race go? Because you notice it in the race as well. You suddenly, yeah. like it's really well done and it's quite subtle. And yes. then she calls, she sort of says... Well, he's thinking, what are my arms? Steel springs. What yeah. are they going to do? Sink. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I in a pool? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. But I didn't, I didn't think he was doing that to win her favour. I think he was doing that to not invite his scorn. Yes. So I think he was letting the old man win because he could see it was important to him. Yeah. And so... Because he was new, he thought, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make an enemy of this guy." Yeah, um, and he will really enjoy winning. But the part that I find really revealing and weird is that how proud of himself is he is that he won. Like oh, Bill yeah. Kerr's character, it's yeah. like he has no idea. He just thinks, "Oh yeah," he doesn't even it doesn't even cross his mind right. that Mel Gibson's character might have let him win. Right, and that's and and that's you know it's funny because uh, Weaver says to him, "You know you." You kind of gave up that race, and she says, oh, "Aren't you competitive?" He's, "Oh no, no, I'm really competitive." But it also shows you Guy Hamilton's ambition. Yeah, because he's that's right. And, or, yeah, and that's right because he wants to make contacts yeah. where he is, and he realizes the colonel might be useful later. But also, he doesn't he doesn't uh, wink or you know get like, "Oh yeah," but we all know that I won. Like, there's yeah. no he actually 
for he he gives her no impression that he went through the race at all. Yeah. The only reason she knows it is because she watched. She watched. But he doesn't give her any reason to believe otherwise. And that's a really subtle uh, building up of their relationship because she was obviously watching closely enough to realise that and then bring it up with him and then he... Anyway, it's mm. it's the, the subtleties in the script are great. Um Toward the, uh, I've got a few more questions. Uh, toward the end of the movie, uh, Weaver's character tells Guy that a Chinese ship is en route with arms for the Indonesian communists, and she tells him because she wants him to escape before violence erupts. Yet he then uses that information to confirm a major story, and Billy is disgusted by this betrayal. But is Guy wrong to do this as a journalist, or? Like, wasn't that his job that he was sent there for? Like, where where do you sit morally with that? Well, I felt that he was... Well, I think his ego and his profession are intertwined. So his desperation to break a big story is real, like as in for his career, but he also realises that it's a story that needs to be told because it's going to affect the people on the ground. Yeah. So in a weird way, I actually think Guy Hamilton's character is caught between Billy and Sigourney Weaver's character a little bit yeah, because it's like, well, these people are about to be fucked over big time. Yeah, so I need to let people know that this is happening. So I think he does believe that he's doing the right thing, but by believing he's doing the right thing, also suits his career. Yeah, so it sort of it lines up for him. The only thing that he's doing is he's betraying Sigourney's character. But, but at the same time, I I mean, I, it's been a little while since I've seen the film. I felt that there was some sense that she was telling him because she was almost willingly giving him that scoop, as in she thought people needed to know that was happening, so she was acting outside her because she's part of the British Embassy or something. Yeah, isn't she? there's something going on with like, her. I feel like it's. I thought I felt it was ambiguous. Like she might have told him, "Oh, please don't tell anyone this," but in her mind, she knew she was telling a journalist. And was hoping that he would turn it into a news story. Well, it's funny. It's kind but of she couldn't do it herself. No, she couldn't do it. But it's kind of implied more that she just wants him to get out while things are safe. And yeah. then he kind of says to her, "Well, you know, I'm a journalist. Yes. So you must have known on some level, yeah, that this is how it would play out. Yeah. But it's interesting that Billy takes this as a complete betrayal. But then what's interesting is he goes and he gets the story confirmed through other means. Like, he just uses that as the springboard so it can't come back to her. Anyway, yeah. it's really, it's it's morally murky, which makes it great. Yeah, which makes it compelling, yeah. yeah. Uh, is Guy's attitude to the Colonel being British indicative of how Aussies felt back then or is that still co-writer David Williamson continuing his feelings, <laughs> which were evident in Gallipoli? <laughs> I mean, part of me feels like, I mean, it's this film was designed for international release but at yeah. the same time the english being villains is a common theme in many films even outside i mean even in films that i i presume english people enjoy like gandhi yeah the english are the baddies yeah so star wars yeah that's right <laughs> but i think that even like i've always thought that baddies are just bad people and like when we when an australian watches gandhi you probably yeah. think oh look at the english they're so bad yeah i can't believe they did that but I'm guessing if you were English and watched that, you'd go, oh, colonialists, they're so bad. Oh, yeah. yeah. Whereas us people who are back in the home country, we're nice. We went out there exploiting yeah. people ourselves. So maybe you always find your own version. So I just figure that, yeah, for an Australian audience, they're looking at him and just thinking, oh, 
what a horrible English person. Yeah. But I imagine if you're English, you'd just think that he represented English expats who, who you don't consider yourself to be. Right, which is also what I consider some of those journalists in this movie. Yeah, yeah oh, I'm nothing like those guys. But, yeah. you know, probably in England, they're watching that going, fucking Aussies, mate. Yeah, look, look at, at those them. Australian journalists. All they do is drink all day. <laughs> they pref- the only thing they're committed to is drinking too much. <laughs> Whereas we watch that and go, yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> you don't take your work too seriously Yeah, calm down, mate uh, Two more questions for you How quickly does Guy regret getting to the plane with his detached retina? <laughs> I'm reckoning, oh. I'm taking a guess Seconds into takeoff Yes <laughs> Like it's all, like it's a really oh, beautiful ending no. And it's a great ending You go, oh, because it's really tense yes. and everything yeah. and, then, and then I'm sitting there going Mate, I'm like Oh. I've had a cold on a plane and had my yeah. head nearly explode. But also remember, it's like, I don't, time-wise, it doesn't seem like it's that long before then, but he has an absolute bender with the American. Yeah. And they just go crazy. They just oh, go, yeah. and they, I still feel like he's got a bit of that hangover as well. Yeah. Thumping through his detached retina. <laughs> yeah, it's always a <laughs> It's a really bad plan. flight. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's a romantic, it's good that they end there because we get, we get them hugging on the plane yeah. and we don't, have to watch her looking at the stewardess like... Oh, what can I do with this guy? Yeah, yeah fuck. Like he's hung over. He's got a detached yeah. retina. Yeah, it smells like a petrol station. Oh, what a disaster. <laughs> um, he's so sweaty as well. Yeah. Uh, and finally, could you turn this into an ongoing TV series or a mini-series? Oh, yeah. I reckon definitely. A mini-series would be great. Because it's getting back, I reckon, to... For me, often TV series... Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe, but even just limited run series, you know, like... eight. One hour episodes. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the shows that I really enjoy watching on streaming services, dramas, is they create a mood and they maintain the mood. And, yeah, and, and this, so if, you know, there's something about you know, like you know, you watch Chernobyl and you watch it, and like you just you're in a mood as soon as it starts, yeah. and the sound and the look and everything, and you're immersed. Yeah, it happens within a minute of it starting, and you're suddenly in there. Yeah. One thing that this would have going for it is that it's something that hasn't been exploited. Yeah. The, the historical event which people kind of know about but don't know much detail. Right. You could go into much more detail about that. But yeah, Indonesians, expats hanging out in uh, Indonesia in the 60s, it, it feels like a... Could be an ongoing series. Yeah, it doesn't feel like... But also doesn't feel like a... Um, it, it, it feels unique. Yeah. This, this, this movie could mm. be like the third season. Yeah. You know, you could have stuff before and stuff after. Yeah, and all the... And also the... The journalists meeting up at the bar that they meet up at yep. regularly. You know how lots... Of, I feel like that's a real key thing in, in dramas that are TV series. There's got to be a congregation point for right. the characters to get together. Yeah. It holds the whole show together. You can imagine that bar where they all yep. hang out being a place where information gets traded and yep. and conversations happen and, and that would be a real central part of the show. Yeah. And then the, the historical event and the political unrest would just be the paranoia that sort of that sort of hums away through it through it yeah and and every now and then breaks out into street protests police action yeah. uh terrorist events uh you know like a, a bomb going off or that punctuates it dramatically if, if you knew the history you'd be if you didn't know the history you could just enjoy it as a drama and if you knew the history you could be enjoying what the characters are going through and knowing oh hang on what's the date yes oh this is coming up and they don't know it so yeah it could work on that level as and well. also just it, the whole thing being high drama yeah and mean i mean if you another thing you do with the tv series often is like they just have like I've been watching, um, I've been enjoying Dust Boot. 
Oh yeah, the uh, the the current version of the movie that they've got as a yeah. TV series on SBS Online, and when you watch that, like when you watch the movie, it's yeah. just to contain submarines. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile dot com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Story and all the paranoia about being on the submarine. Yep, so what is so it? So you now? think, well, how does it become a TV show? Well, it's got that, but yep. then it's got other strands. It's also got the base. Right. So there's the base and the political maneuverings around the base. And, this, the, and then there's the French town that the base is in. Right. So imagine the movie that we saw also juxtaposed against Menzies' era, comfortable 60s Australia, suburban, yeah. boring. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know how it's connected. Maybe it's connected via the people working at the ABC back in Sydney. Yeah. And some the of ABN. their lives. <laughs> and so they're just having really boring stuff going on. Yeah. Juxtaposed against this Guy Hamilton radioing in reports where everything's going to shit. Yeah. And and also the frustration of the journalist. Why isn't anyone putting this on the front page? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We should pitch that. That's yeah. really good. <laughs> uh, I've got we this... may have just pitched it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, if anyone's listening, we're ready to go. <laughs> uh, and just some uh, squid bits of uh, th- bits of information that I found. Uh, the screenplay was written by Peter Weir and David Williamson, adapted from Christopher Koch's, Cox, K-O-C-H. I couldn't find a spelling. Anyway. That's K- that. K-O-C-H. Yeah, Koch. It can be Koch or Koch. Yeah. yeah. Or Coke. Uh, it is in America, I think. Let's go Kosh. Yeah, okay. Uh, Christopher Kosh's 1978 novel of the same name. There were drafts by Kosh and lots of rewrites, including three drafts by Alan Sharp. Kosh came back to work on sections of the voiceover and later claimed the script was 55% Williamson Weir and 45% Kosh, which is, I don't know, sounds sounds like an interesting back and forth uh, yeah. screenplay writing. Um, dancer David Atkins was originally cast as Billy Kwan. But during wow. yeah, but during rehearsals, Peter Weir felt that he and Gibson weren't quite working, so he decided to recast. Several actors auditioned, and when he saw a photo of Linda Hunt, he asked her to audition and decided to cast her. Weir said, "I never would have started out looking for a woman, but from the moment I saw her test, I knew she was appropriate." So what Hunt did was she shortened her hair and dyed it black. She shaved her eyebrows. She wore padding around her waist. And she always carried something in her shirt pocket. What do I? Is the shirt pocket something to, like, does that? Why I've found that really interesting. That kept coming up. Always carrying something in the shirt pocket. Is that something that just kind of visually distracts you, so you don't that? Maybe. Helps? Yeah, maybe. But it's also it suggests that you're I don't know you're you're busy or something. Yeah, something right. In your top pocket, so you can just you know you got to 
grab it at any given time. It gives you something to fiddle with too, as an actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, Actors it, love to fiddle. They, yeah, mm. yeah. It was like Brad Pitt with his eating and stuff yeah. like that. It was, uh, it was just such a funny thing that I saw that kept being mentioned uh, of all the things that did. Always oh, said something in the, in the front pocket. It's like, oh, okay. Mm. If anyone's an actor who can give us a proper, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to know. Uh, so Hunt won Best Supporting Actress at the 1983 Oscars and became the first person to win an Oscar portraying a character of the opposite sex. The crew received death threats from radical Muslims while filming in the Philippines and had to finish filming the movie in Australia. At your school. There you go. Yep. But yeah, well, they must have yeah, because they realized they realized that they just needed a pool, so yeah. they just yeah, and also the air base again, they probably just needed tarmac, yeah, essentially just they just needed bitumen, yeah. So I'm guessing if you watch the airplane scenes, if you look off in the distance, you'll probably see eucalypts as opposed to jungle, jungle, right? Yeah, yeah. but not that you'd notice. Uh, Gibson said Guy Hamilton was not a silver tongued devil. He's kind of immature and he has some rough edges, and I guess you could say the same for me. He also said, I don't think Guy is complex. He's just very boring. It was uh, a matter of making him more interesting. He goes through this adventure and meets all of these really interesting characters, but in turn, he's just a reactor. And you go, oh, yeah, he really is. Yeah, it's true. He's he's thrown into this amazing circumstance, but he's not... Yeah, the the circumstance he's in is amazing, but he's not. Because you're right. He has really quite boring aims. He just wants to... He just wants to get on the front page of the newspaper with his story because that's what journalists do and he wants to uh, root Sigourney Weaver because he's a man. Yeah. (laughs) And it's funny. That's about it. it, Well, it's it's, regardless of what you think of the journalists who are already embedded when he arrives, he doesn't really click. No, they're they're all. all intellectual. Yeah, you get because they they all feel like you feel like they're all working on a memoir or yes, they're they're sort of the I don't they're, they're sort of the kind of people who idealize a Graham Green type character. Yeah, whereas and and they're all sort of they're outdoing each other with their witticisms and stuff at the bar. Yeah, whereas he's just drinking. Yeah, <laughs> and then and they're all a little bit taken aback when they're a bit aloof. He like they're all kind of they've got their places and they they're, they're not going to really step on each other's toes. As you said, they'd rather be witty then break anything groundbreaking. And then when he starts breaking stuff, they're a bit like... Uh, This is not how it works around here, mate. Mate, calm down. Yeah, they're going to stop... Yeah, they're going to stop giving us stories. Right. Uh, Gibson and Hunt hit it off immediately, but it took until the moment with the rain and the the downpour uh, for uh, Weaver and Gibson to connect. So according to crew members, he was more matter-of-fact. He was just sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm Mel Gibson. Oh, hang on, I'm Guy Hamilton. And I'm making a film. Yeah, and Weaver, Weaver was more intense using method style and the scene where they got drenched was done with fire hoses and that and so all that stuff when they get into the car and that's all really genuine and from that moment they really clicked. Yeah. But that, like, depending on when they film scenes, that kind of matches up a little bit as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it just depends on whether they shot the film in order or not. Yeah. 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 It's funny that how that can happen, yeah. Yeah. And finally, the movie was made for $6 million. Like, in 1982, like, that's a big movie. Yeah. Uh, especially coming out of Australia. And it made $10 million worldwide, so it was a success. A modest success. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but any any last thoughts on the film? Is there anything that we missed or...? definitely worthwhile uh for anyone who hasn't seen it to to sit down and and watch it it 
Yeah. Really well, now's a good time to along. catch up on films you haven't seen. Yeah. And it's something I've been doing with music for a while now is sometimes it's good to find someone you really like and, and sort of sneak sideways. So you might know, like this is a classic case where you might know about Mad Max 2 and Gallipoli. Right. And then you're like, what else did Mel Gibson do around that time? And then this is a perfect film to watch. Yeah. But likewise, now I'm thinking, oh, Peter Weir, I didn't, I didn't know he did Fearless. Oh, now yeah. I'm going to watch Fearless. So and I think, we're I not going to fly re- anytime soon, so right. now it's a good time. Yeah, so I think, it's, I think it's a really good thing to remember just to like, when you find someone you like, just look at the other stuff they're doing around then yeah. and watch it in that context. It's, a, it's quite a treat to do that. Yeah, and you know what? It's just really nice to remember that Mel Gibson. Yes. He's delightful. He's so good. He, he believes the best in everyone. Yeah. Of all races. Of all races. We'll <laughs> we leave. presume. <laughs> like, for the sake of this podcast. Yeah, surely. I'm going to bring Rachel in, but just a quick opportunity to tell you that I'm touring with Tom Gleason in a couple of weeks. We're performing two shows in Canberra on the 21st of November, and on the 28th of November, we will be in Newcastle. That's just a one-off. So I'll be supporting Tom on those gigs, and he's also performing at the Sydney Opera House on the 4th and 5th of December, and I'm supporting him on the 4th. Uh, We actually did a mini tour earlier in the year, around January, which... Far out. Feels like seven years ago, doesn't it? But uh, I can't wait to get back on the road with Tom, and his show is fantastic. It's a really funny show. Tom is in fantastic form. So if you're in Canberra, if you're in Newcastle, or if you're in Sydney, and you would like to come along and see Tom's show, and consider me as a little tasty entree, head over to comedy.com.au for more details. Okay. Now let's bring in Rachel with her segment, Spin-Off. Big morning here in Australia and a big night for you because we've had the election result come through for the US and Biden is now officially in. It felt like he was going to be in for a while and I'm curious to know what the mood in Canada is like. Uh, It's a bit crazy. We found out, like, they called Pennsylvania, which threw him over the 270 at about 11.30 this morning and... The streets, like, kind of everyone was, like, banging pots and pans in the street and, like, cars were honking. People are very happy. So, it's good. I'm curious to know, does Canada normally get this invested in an American election from what you can tell? Because it's hard. No. I think everyone just hates Trump. (laughs) I think it's sort of the vibe of, like, it's similar to Australia. I mean, it's um, the same way, like, I mean, we always care um, as much as we care about I mean, the American election has international influence, but I do think there is, um, it's the same attitude here as there's more interest currently than there probably has been. But yes. I guess I can also say, like, I haven't been here for another election. <laughs> no. I'm guessing, like, sharing a border with a country that is just recording huge numbers still with the coronavirus is mm. something to be wary of as well. Oh, it was it was a massive issue a while ago, like um because Trump like there was conversation he wanted to open the border to Canada and uh I know Doug Ford, who's the premier of Ontario, um, was saying, No, we don't want you here, like go away because it was they had like we bought in New York and New York was just an absolute like shit show. So I mean we didn't really want that coming up and 
there was a period where there was just so much like linking to people who'd been in the US and were coming up here. So yeah, um, it's, we still have the border closed at the moment, but yeah, I think, but I also just think it's a matter of like, regardless of COVID, just with everything, like they share a border, they have so much influence. And I mean, in our field as well, like, I mean, in comedy and entertainment in general, like having America with that much influence and everything, it, it is important. Like there is a lot of trade, there is a lot of everything, I guess. So people are very affected. They still control the narrative as well, and it's it's been fascinating. Uh, of course, uh, I've been watching all the Tenet news with Nolan, and he was like coming out and saying, you know, for a movie to be released during a pandemic and make three hundred and fifty million worldwide, <laughs> like that's uh, amazing, you know. And mm. the reason it was released was to give the cinemas content, so you had a reason to keep employing people and keep yeah. the and keep that like keep an industry alive but it's interesting because in america it only made of that amount and only made 50 million mm. it's considered a massive failure and then nolan was saying you know i, I think maybe the wrong lessons are being taken from this <laughs> and of course that had a whole lot of americans mocking it but it's like well i like I even saw someone, a, a journalist on Twitter, uh, American journalist on Twitter saying, does anyone even remember Tenant? And I wanted to write to him and go, yeah, I do. Because I live in a country that handled it really well. And I went to the cinema stacks of heaps of times. I saw it six times. But anyway, that's not the well. point. <laughs> but, and I was about to write that and I was like, oh, you know what? He's having an existential crisis because he lives in America. But it's, but it's still, that's even, in, he's been through enough. But that's even in an unimportant way of how they control the narrative and then if you apply that to important subjects oh very much so and i think um like especially this year with um the huge like black lives matter protests mm. and everything like that like that had huge repercussions up in toronto like here um there were huge protests etc here i understand there were some in australia as well um but i think Canada does have a lot more similarities to the US, just generally, culturally, than Australia does in a lot of ways. And Australia's just a long way away. It's really as simple as we share a border, you know? Yeah. So um, it, it has had a huge influence and people are very, very happy today. So that's good. <laughs> it's still kind of, it, it does feel a little bit like a mild uh, defeat as well because so many people still voted for Trump. And what's fascinating is when you listen to, you know, I listen to a few American podcasts and they're still a little bit confused as to how he still gets these votes. And I have a theory. Well, it's there's a bit of a cult thing to it, but I think there's a, a few theories that you can apply. And I'm curious to know, what, what do you think is important about Trump that appeals to these people, that they still vote for him, even when he's quite clearly doing an awful job? Honestly, I don't think it's anything logical or sensical because to me, I, I just can't see how anybody could even look at Donald Trump and think of him even as a candidate, but like, let alone anything else, you know, but the thing that keeps popping up, like, and I remember seeing like Kirstie Alley posted on Twitter not long ago saying like that she's going to vote for him because he's not a politician. And it's like this disdain for politicians. And it's like, that's like getting someone round to fix your pipes and being like, I'm hiring him because he's not a plumber. Like, what? That's not... Like, I understand this disdain for politicians 
in general because I mean like everyone hates politicians but like that's that's kind of their job is to be hated like you're supposed to hate politicians in a weird way do you know what I mean like because you're never going to make everyone happy that's kind of the nature of the job but it's like they're not supposed to be as hated as Trump is you know know? like that's crossed the line you know but I think Trump has he's just created such division in America and that's what scares me I think Biden and that will have such a, like, they're just such a divided country right now. And that's terrifying. And I think they've also divided huge, like the trickle down effect of that is that you see around the world. And even though, like I always said in 2016, when he won in 2016 and people were like, before he'd actually gotten in and um, was sort of saying, oh, give him a chance. You never know, like the Republican party might control, like keep him under control, you know? And of course that seems very naive now, but at the time I remember people saying that and I remember thinking like the damage has sort of been done because even if he gets in and like he was a fantastic president for the last four years, which he was obviously not, the damage has been done because he ran such a campaign based on hate and um, misogyny and racism. And I mean, at the end of the day, so many Americans okayed that. So many Americans were okay to vote for that. And like, I mean, as a woman, that was terrifying. That that was um, something that so many people were just okay with. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like as a black person living in America or something like that. And so I think the damage had been done because airtime had been given to so much hate. And I think that whether these people who are still voting for him genuinely have this much hate in their hearts, in which case I I just could never relate to that because I just don't. And quite frankly, I hope I never can relate to that because I would never want to be like that. Well, I think that kind of dovetails into where I think uh, some mistakes were made. I think there were, which kind of, gave him the perfect platform to take advantage of all of this stuff. And one of those things is I think the left completely underestimates that he has a sense of humour. And I've talked about this before. And people think that to say someone is funny, it doesn't actually mean you think they're funny. Like you've, <laughs> we've, we've both done plenty of gigs where we're at the back of the room watching an act going, this is an arsehole on stage, but I cannot argue that the people in the room are laughing. And when you watch him, he's a, he has a sense of humour that appeals to a certain type of person. And this... <laughs> oh, definitely not us. Not in, not in any way. But he's got, he's got comic timing. Like some of the stuff that he does where people say that's insane. And, but if you listen, everyone in the room is laughing because it appeals to them. But then I think the other side of it no, is... Oh, yeah. No, he definitely knows how to play to his <laughs> audience. And then I sort of think, well, another aspect of it is the left has to take some responsibility for providing uh, an environment where someone like this can rise, which is when you look at cancel culture, which comes out of really important progressive ideas. But if you are someone who isn't staying up to date and then suddenly you're being yelled at for using an incorrect word or you're using uh, or you're saying that you like someone who has been cancelled and then you're being attacked I think what that does is it uh, it pushes people who might be moderate it pushes them in a different direction I agree I think um, I like sit in a very 
kind of middle ground position with the cancel culture concept because I'm somebody, I do believe that, I do believe with a lot of things like give them an inch, they'll take a mile. So I do believe it needs to be stamped out everywhere you see it, especially things like racism and misogyny and stuff. I do think it needs to be stamped out everywhere. However, like one thing I did notice coming to Canada is, and I said this a while ago, was that I felt um, it was probably a lot stronger than it is in Australia, like the left ideals in a lot of ways. And I've always considered myself extremely left wing. I'm one of those radical Dems they go on about, you know, but um, it's, it did start to feel particularly at the start of um, COVID, I started noticing it, that it was becoming very um, like, you have to do it our way or you're wrong. And also our way will be changing all the time. And it started to feel a little bit like the lack of empathy was starting to come out. And I don't feel, I do feel like the left, like, as I said, I'm very left. I do feel very um, much that it is a very empathetic movement. But I think one thing I saw written by, and I believe it was actually an interview with Taylor Swift, but I just thought this was so correct, was when she said that the reason the liberal side lose and the Democrats lose is because the conservatives, every single time, Trump's people put on the MAGA hat, they're a part of that community. The moment they put on that hat, no one cares where you come from, no one cares what you believe, you're part of their group. And the problem with the left is that um, it's so divided because it's like so much friendly fire. The right wing almost don't need to do anything because we're shooting each other. And we spend that much time like picking apart why people are saying things as opposed to the fact that they're agreeing with us. Like if someone agrees with their ideals, it's like we need to check out their motives for doing so. And don't get me wrong, I do think motives and that do need to be looked into. But at the end of the day, there has to be a certain united front we put forward to the world. And I feel like that is something that the left wing lacks at times. I feel like sometimes we do lack that united front to put forward and that can get overpowered when there is a united front on the right even if it is such a hateful and divided united front if that makes sense i know that's contradictory but and i think that honestly is why the democrats and the left wing in general can struggle in everywhere because yeah he created call it a cult or like and i do think the trumpness is a cult but like he created a cult and they're a member of that cult and they all put on that hat and whether no matter what you're a part of it now and i feel like we don't have that united put on a biden t-shirt and everyone's happy because biden has had problematic things as well you know and i think it becomes we don't we don't have that champion you know what i mean as someone who was brought up almost socialist in in many regards uh I think a really good example of what you're talking about, and this is, I'm, I'm using this as an example and not taking any sides in it whatsoever. But mm. if you look at left-wing feminism, mm. even even off the top of my head, I can go, well, there is the Emma Watson and there's the J.K. Rowling, who would both consider themselves left-wing feminists. And, and like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not taking sides so. in the argument, but even that aspect when you are putting it up, if you've got those two camps here in left-wing feminism under a title, and then on the right, you've just got women who are right-wing. Yeah. They're just right-wing. 
It's, it's very true. And I stand by, I do believe that things like um, all form of transphobia, everything like that needs to be shut down the moment you sit at all levels. But at the same time, I don't know, like I think feminism is something. And one thing I always believe is like feminism, um, feminism means equality of the sexes. And that's what it means. And that means to me that I'm very believe in intersectional feminism. I believe in that we need to appreciate everyone who's involved in that conversation. And I do believe that trans women are women. I don't think that's even a debate for me. You know, that's just trans women are women. So, um, but I do believe like anything that calling yourself a label does not make you that label. Calling yourself a feminist does not make you a feminist. Calling yourself a feminist, if you hate like all men and want to be, think women are superior and like, et cetera, and kind of go down that road or want to divide women like JK Rowling, who is so problematic and like Jesus. I mean, not like Jesus, you know what I mean? <laughs> that came out, not enough of a pause there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll add a pause. I'll edit it so I add a pause to make that a bit better for you. <laughs> oh, Jesus, he just was so not progressive on 2020 politics. <laughs> but I think that then you, um, it's not feminism. It's you're just, you're commandeering a movement for your own selfish needs. But you they support themselves. Mm. Right, but that's my exact argument is the fact is everything you said, like I agree with what you just said, mm. but they wouldn't. And, and, you know, she was a single mum who came from no money and, and worked her way up and created this. So, and there's all these, and then suddenly we get, oh, okay, boomer. And then you get all of that and it <laughs> evolves. And, but what I mean is, so then the, that's just one tiny example of what's going yeah. on on the left. And then the right wing conservatives are just going, they're awful. Let's all hang over here. And it's easier to, uh, it's easier to militarize yourself. Very much. And to use it back, uh, like, I guess, to counter my earlier argument, um, I'm now just contradicting myself. Like, I mean, I'm sure that someone like J.K. Rowling, who I like, think is just an absolute mess of a person at the moment, she has some very, very problematic views, but I'm sure she probably voted Democrat. Like, so then if we're to go back, if we're to, go back to what I was saying before about the fact that, like, um, we've got so much infighting in that, well, I don't think we should forgive J.K. Rowling because she voted for Biden. You know what I mean? Like, how far does that go? You know, I do think that people need to be, like, people need to be held accountable for their actions. And I think that needs to be on all levels. And I feel like over the last four years, um, the Republicans have risen almost as a group who are anti being held accountable for your actions. And I think the problem is that as we move through this we're in a somewhat precarious time in political correctness at the moment. Over the last even five years, um, things have changed. And I think as we learn that, I think it's about education and about being understanding that people are learning, but then when there's people like J.K. Rowling who repeatedly say things, uh, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it does become this... It's difficult. It's, it's difficult to be... It's difficult to do the right thing, <laughs> you know. Like, and the reality is that we are doing the left wing care more about other people's feelings. They well, care more about care at all about other people's feelings. The left wing spend genuine time wanting to form equality and wanting to create harmony. That's harder than just hating everybody. That's harder than discrimination, you know. So we're going to have a harder time. And but 
I don't know, I would rather struggle to find that than any day of the week be a member of the right wing. So, Well, absolutely. But then think about someone who is learning and is in the middle and doesn't really understand what's going on hmm. and then gets on social media and sees everyone yelling at each other about a certain topic <laughs> and then they just see this really easy answer over there and they're... That's that's how you create these divisions. We, we've lost the power of conversation. That's the the main problem. But also, I also have to point out that I think it is. I understand how we've gotten to this point as well because, and I've noticed this in the. I'll, I'll use this from the comedy community. I think one of the things that people are very good at doing is adapting the language of the times, but not necessarily backing it up with the actions. And we've seen it very much so in, I think people have forgotten things like the Me Too movement was essentially to begin with women getting really angry and yelling and saying, we have been telling you this for decades and now you have to pay attention. And then what you see is a lot of people, you know, who are once again probably more politically minded like we are, who adapt that language, but they then don't follow through with their actions and make a stand. And when they see someone doing something, say on stage, that is problematic, they don't say anything. They don't go and tell the person who runs that club, hey, just so you know, I'm not going to perform in this venue again if this person performs. What they'll do is they'll stand at the back and they'll say, that's awful, make some jokes about it and go home and not follow through with any of their actions. So I understand how we get to these, you know, all caps conversations. <laughs> well, and I fully, I fully agree. And I feel like, especially in the comedy community, I mean, things like Me Too. I mean, it's on stage is, Jesus, I'm... I'm tiniest amount of what it's like off stage like the amount of uh, like I always like there's a few girls in Sydney in particular and we always used to laugh about these guys who get on stage and make these jokes about how woke they are and how feminist they are and how they've adapted to the Me Too movement and that and how they support the Me Too movement but they're sexually harassing the comedians off stage like so it's and the guys, they they never say anything, you know? So it's a it's going to be interesting. I, I, you'd be hard-pressed to find a female stand-up comedian who has not dealt with sexual assault or sexual harassment from another comedian. Like, yeah. that's just the reality. And that continues to this day. And I think these things they do, but we've always said that, you know? it's This isn't new information. Like you were saying with the Me Too movement, it's saying we've said this for so long and no one pays any attention. And it becomes one of those things like, the one thing every time anyone seems to bring it up, the thing that keeps on getting brought up is um, like these guys love to come back and say, well, then why you keep doing it? It's like, well, because, or, or why didn't you say anything? And it's like, well, because quite frankly, if I stopped oh. performing in every room where there was a male comedian who creeped me out, I would never perform again. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's really depressing, but it's so true. <laughs> no, no, right? It's so true. And it's, that's just sort of the reality of being in a male-dominated industry. And I do think we're moving in the right direction. I do think very much in the more conversations, the fact that we have these conversations now, it's so important. Um, generations gone by, these conversations weren't had. And I think the more we talk about it, and as you said, someone just coming into the like conversation at all and learning and seeing so much being thrown around, the answer is just going to be education. The answer is going to be more. And I understand that um, 
things like trans rights and that are starting to be taught in schools, things like that. So I guess the younger we educate and especially kids, um, I think conversations need to be had with children. We need to start treating kids like they need to be protected from the world in a way that just prolongs the inevitable in a weird way. You know, these conversations need to be had during formative years and it's going to take a while. I don't know if it'll be in our lifetime, but hopefully we'll see a day when these things do happen, but maybe that's just a utopian vision of God. Right? I, I don't know, but it's, it's still, it, regardless of whether it is something that can be achieved or can't be achieved, it is still worthwhile being something that's strive for. And I was having some contact with a, a friend of mine who lives in LA and I saw that they held up um, his son, I think is like seven, held up a sign that he'd drawn celebrating Biden winning. And uh, my friend was saying, you know, it's been really hard for the last four years trying to explain things to him. And th- like this morning, there was something, I forget what the topic was, but his son at the age of seven was like, oh, so America does that, then that makes us no better than the rest of the world. And at first you're a bit heartbroken that a seven-year-old is having to learn these truths now when he should just be... Like, the biggest debate he should have is could Thor, as a magical person, beat Superman? Superman's (laughs) obviously more powerful, but Superman also has a weakness towards magic, and Thor is magic. So that should be his biggest debate. But in the long term, maybe that... that. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, like, luckily I had those things to think about at seven. But he'll be a fascinating young man because he's Hmm. learning this stuff now and he'll have time to process it. But, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I also think people get so touchy about things and I understand that as a first reaction once again you know there's been a lot of stuff down here in Australia with a a certain venue in Melbourne and uh, the the feeling and vibe it gives towards women performing there Hmm. and a lot of male comedians have been sort of taking it personally that some women have come out and and talked against it and it's like just because you don't see something doesn't mean it's not, not true like and and sometimes when you have to improve like with the me too movement of course you have to look at it and go okay well how can i be better now that doesn't by saying how can i be better that doesn't mean it you're wrong or part, even necessarily a direct part of the problem yes but you can be better and i would say there have probably been like not enough venues that i haven't said that i wouldn't go back and perform at because of the way i've seen women you know, treated in the past. Mm. That would that would have been a thing that, you know, you draw a line in the sand with. Or speaking up a little bit more. You know, I've said things in the past, but speaking up in the moment. Yeah. It's, to me, I honestly think the biggest thing for me, and like, honestly, I'm just speaking for myself at this point. The biggest thing for me is I feel like when things like this have occurred, happened to me and happened to my friends, it is half the time you just want men to listen. And the problem is that most of the time, they just don't. They are so, like, and I know I'm massively generalizing men at this point. I've also had, had a lot of men in my life who have been extremely supportive in these scenarios. But um, it feels like a lot of the time, like you're describing, I don't know much about the situation in Melbourne at the moment, because um, obviously I'm not in that community at the moment. But it's, it feels like um, not only is it taken personally, but it's like you've said something So now I'm going to get immediately on the defensive and start defending my friends 
even though I clearly have not actually taken on what you've just said. And I feel a lot of the times, like I've had situations in the past. I remember um, there was a venue in Sydney that I um, refused to perform. I showed up one night and um, the situation was such that I did not feel comfortable or safe performing in it. So I said to the room runner, I'm leaving. This isn't what I'm about. This isn't my vibe. And he got very aggressive towards me. And I know there were like six or seven guys who I know who are comics who all just sat there and watched this interaction um, with no problem at all. But then later on that night, um, they were all posting on Facebook and that about like this, like as if they had been on my side, but they all continue to perform at this venue. And they said sweet nothing at the time. And I just, honestly, it made me lose a lot of respect for those guys. Like, you know, cause to me it was like, well, even if they'd shut up, but don't try and claim you're on the right side of this argument because you weren't. You, on any side of this argument, you did shit all. So I just feel like a lot of the time it would just be, it's not, I don't want white knighting. I don't want them to jump up and start defending me. I don't need to be defended. You know, I can, I can defend myself, but it's more just, um, it would have been nice to receive a message being like, hey, you sweet, how's it all going? You know, like just listen and Think of how someone else might have feelings that maybe you haven't noticed. Maybe you haven't experienced for that reason. And I feel like we experienced that this year with um, the Black Lives Matter thing and that, and the amount of people who were like, who are white people who would say, um, well, all experiences with the police I've had have been amazing. Well, I could say that. All experiences I personally, Rachel Melanger, have had with the police, the police have been great. I'm also a white woman. Like, why would I have experienced racism? Like, that's ridiculous. It is a ridiculous thing for you to assume that you can speak for all experiences when you would not be in that position. And I, th I think that's not to relate those, um, those two issues, but you know what I'm saying? Like, in regards to, you don't know because it's not your experience. And I think that as white people, we need to step back and appreciate that we will never understand that experience. Um, we can only listen and educate ourselves. And I feel like it's a similar scenario in general with this. Listening to women has taught me three really important things. One is women are constantly in some form of harassment that you miss if you don't look for it. Hmm. Make sure you don't smell bad and <laughs> have good arms because secretly women like men's arms and Love that's arms. probably your best trait. I am, I'm all about arms. I've always said that. Um, <laughs> this is, this is just being raised by a single mum and hearing those three things over the years and the uh, tickety boo, I will keep them all in mind. I'm very paranoid <laughs> about smelling bad as well. Cause I, I suddenly realized that women, you know, have a heightened sense of smell and a lot of men smell, uh, the key word over the years has been sour. Sour. You know what? I do think <laughs> that 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 is a thing. Smell is very important. Smell is very important. <laughs> I could never date a smoker. I've always said I could never date a smoker. Oh right, of course, but it's yeah. it's everywhere. But remember, are you too young to? Did were, were you going out? Uh, and because I know you've worked in bars and stuff like that in the past. The the were the smoking laws out. Uh, or in, I mean. So, or were people smoking when you were working? No, there? people were certainly not smoking in clubs or anything. By the time I was working in clubs. Oh yeah. So you you have missed uh, an experience that you might. This is such a good experience for you to have missed, where you go out 
and you have a good night out. And the first thing you do when you get home is you put most of your clothes on the line to air them out because they stink oh, well, and smoke. The thing is- I've always had like really good friends who um, smoke. So we'd have to go into the smoking areas and that. So I would still have to do that because I've never smoked. Um, and, but in the way, it's the same here with um, pot in Canada because weed is legal. So I have the first few nights that I went out in Toronto and I went home and I was like, I reek of marijuana. <laughs> I like, smell like so much of marijuana because you'll be in, Places where they'll be smoking it. And I smell like I've been rolling around in the streets of Nimbin. Like, what has happened here? Uh, you wrote a tweet, which I saw this morning, uh, just before we uh, started chatting, and you were, <laughs> you were wondering if Melania will be the new bachelorette. And what, what do you think happens from here for her? Because it has been so... That has been about the only part of the Trump presidency that has given me this mild relief is watching her face at any given moment. Oh, my God. Melania Trump. Like, I feel like it could go one of two ways. Like, I do feel like we might be giving Melania a bit too much credit. Like, there's a part of me that's like, we all kind of, like, live in this world where she is, like, this extremely sane woman who's, like, somehow trapped in this marriage. And I don't know about the first part. Yeah, like, <laughs> I just... I mean, if that is the case, then she needs help like any woman in that, but I just don't think that's the case. I do think she is probably just as complicit as the rest of them in a large part. Um, I do. Um, but yeah, there's a part of me, like there was a lot of joking on Twitter on that today, kind of um, of like memes of someone urgently packing their suitcases and that going Melania at the moment. And like, oh, it's a big day for Melania, no matter how you look at it. And like I tweeted earlier going, like in a lot of these uncertain times, I think the one thing we can be certain of is that Melania voted for Biden, but <laughs> that is 100%. But yeah. She's the swing vote. <laughs> she was it. She took us over. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like there's a huge part of me that reckons that she'll leave him, but there's another part of me that reckons like that is giving a little bit too much credit to that group in general. Um yeah, I don't know. Look, you do you, boo, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess that, you know, being out of the White House, they'll be able to get up to all sorts of mischief that they were possibly getting up to in the past. Oh, I think we are going to find out. Like, to me, I just think once Biden and Harris go in, the amount of crap we don't know about. Like, if this is the amount of crap and the amount of corruption and stuff that we do know about, what the hell has been going on that we don't? I think they are going to have the roughest job because I think we're going to find out a lot of stuff that was going on that we have just no knowledge of. So it'll be interesting times ahead. Definitely. And you know what's really funny about all of this chat is that this was not what we were going to talk about. (laughs) You had told me, but it kind of, funnily enough, accidentally dovetails in which is when uh when we were planning on catching up for this chat the thing that you (laughs) well it was spin-off and it still is spin-off but our our starting point was as a young woman you have been getting into Fleetwood Mac's rumors album (laughs) I've always sort of been into Fleetwood Mac's have you yeah it's one of my favorite albums of all time but which is strange because I don't remember my parents really listening to Fleetwood Mac. Oh, what did you, who did your parents listen to? My mum's a big Springsteen fan. She loves Bruce Springsteen. Oh, she looked cold. She looked, my mum listens to a bit of everything. Like, she's a pretty good... Mum's got a good taste in music. 
I honestly, like, I'm sure my dad does too, but I couldn't tell you a band my dad's into. He's not as, um, I guess, into like concerts and such, like my mum is. My mum goes to concerts and loves a lot, a good live band. When I was in year eight at school, so I would have been about 13 or 14, I went to Robbie Williams with my mum. Amazing. Was that your first concert? <laughs> no. no. Uh, my first concert was, you know what? <laughs> you can say it. Simple Plan. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I went through an email phase. I had a lot of emotions as a teenager. That's exactly who you should be listening to uh, yeah. as a teenager. Welcome it's just... to my life spoke to me on a deep level, Justin. Yeah, no, I get that. That's It was, um, it was glam rock for your generation. Oh, I just had a lot of emotions. I really thought I could, like, I could really relate to that level of teen angst. Um, them, My Chemical Romance. I went to the Veronica's concert at one stage. Um, I went to Good Charlotte. I, oh, I had a vibe. But... Or as, as, as Chris Rock introduced them at the MTV Awards, he said next up is Good Charlotte or as he calls them, Bad Green Day. <laughs> You know, it's brutally honest. It's a, it's, a, it's a cruel joke, but it's one of those ones where you go, oh, I can't stop laughing even though I feel <laughs> awful. Because it's not not true. But my sister and I are both very into Good Charlotte, both into Green Day too, actually. Um, but yeah, I think as I got older, once I was in about year 11 and year 12, I got really into Nirvana. And Nirvana is still my favourite band. I still love some Nirvana. Um, but I don't know. I just always found Fleetwood Mac interesting. I liked their music. I've always loved Stevie Nicks. And I like, I mean, Stevie Nicks and Patti Smith are my two big loves in female rock singers. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So so this is this is really interesting to me because my mum... Uh, so, you know, you're influenced by your parents and my mum's very vocal about what she likes and what she doesn't like. She hates Fleetwood Mac and she hates Fleetwood Mac for a very particular reason, which is she loved the first iteration, which was the blues band. And so she saw what they became and thought that it, it just wasn't for her. And so I never listened to Fleetwood Mac. So when you said that you were listening to this album and I thought, well, to be honest, I've never listened to it. Like, never never listened to it uh, from start to go. Probably, even if it had been on in the background, wouldn't have been able to tell you uh, that it was... I, I would have recognised some songs, etc. And one of the things... So I've listened to it about half a dozen times uh, in the lead-up to this. And I have to <laughs> tell you, the biggest surprise I took away from it was I actually did know every song. Yeah. Rivers in particular, there's a lot of... Um big songs like I mean Dreams is one of my favorite songs of all times all times all time yeah I love the song Dreams but I also I also love Go Your Own Way you know I think they're great songs but the thing is like I've listened to this album a million times in my life but I was just listening to it the other day and I thought it was great the spin-off because I love that the people in the band um have written songs about each other and then made the other one like play or sing it, and I think that's very funny. Like I just, I think that is just objectively very, very funny. And this idea that like I wrote this song, it's about you. Um, it's about how much I hate you. Um, here's a guitar, have fun. <laughs> so I just think that's 
it's really funny for if if you're one of the few people in the world who doesn't know the story behind it. They're essentially all having affairs and breaking up with each other, and and then writing songs about it. In John Mulaney, I believe it's his new in town um, special on Netflix, and he says it's an album written by and for people who were cheating on each other. And I think that is just the most accurate description of the song of the album Rumours in the world. By the way, Go Your Own Way, which is probably the song that I like the most. Uh, it was weird. I had, this is how I knew that song. I thought of it less of as a breakup song. I'd never listened to it properly. So I thought of it less as a breakup song. And I know it from a car advert. So I thought it was, for me, it was more a tune about someone else thinking they had a better GPS. So <laughs> to, to listen to it, I had to kind of really shake that car advert fuel off and really, I probably enjoyed that song the most because that was the one I had to work the hardest to listen to properly. I love that song, but also I like the story of that song. There's a line in that song, it's um, packing up, shacking up is all you want to do. And that line... And Lindsay... Yeah, sorry, Lindsay Buckingham wrote that about Stevie Nicks, yes. right? Yes, Lindsay yep. Buckingham wrote that about Stevie Nicks. And she wanted that line removed because she was so offended by that line implying that, like, shacking up with other people, like, that she was basically sleeping around, if you will. Um, and she took that very offensively and wanted that line removed and Lindsay Buckingham wouldn't remove it. And she, like, there's a quote from an interview basically saying that, um, she always took that when they would perform that song and everything that every single time he would sing that line, she, line she wanted to kill him. And it was like him saying, if you want to leave me, I'm going to make it hell for you. And sung that song. Yeah. With that line. And that one is the only one I really found where there was like a specific line that one of them was like, mm, no, but he kept it in. So It's so funny to try and apply this to the world of today. Oh, I'm I'm going to write this very specific lyric about you that is incredibly... Very slut-shaming. Oh, like, absolutely. <laughs> and then her saying, I don't want you to leave it in, him saying, I'm leaving it in, and then them just still performing it. Yeah. It's like, like maybe maybe everyone should have gotten, like, group therapy. Like, maybe <laughs> probably end up with a less interesting album. Well, that's it. The album in general. Like, Fleetwood himself, he was, um, he was currently going through a divorce, and then Christine and John in the band, they were getting divorced after eight years. And then um, Lindsay and Stevie were getting divorced. Or get, sorry, just splitting up. They were never married. Like, it was a chaotic time in the band. How that band released an album at all? Because I've been around friends when they're breaking up. And quite frankly, it's awkward for everybody involved. But I'm almost glad that, like, uh, Fleetwood himself was actually getting a divorce. Because I was thinking, as the fifth person in the room during that... God, that would have been intense. Like, imagine if your love life was just going perfectly and you've got all your friends breaking up and writing songs about each other around you and you're just going, oh, okay. How is everybody? What'd you do on the weekend? We've got nothing to talk about because everything's really good in my life. Have you ever had to work with an ex? I I actually did think about this because I wanted to bring, like, a decent story of my own. And I have never had to work with someone I've dated long term and I've also never like I've had crappy breakups but like never sort of really dramatic stuff you know what I mean but I do have kind of a story that I think is relevant (laughs) right before I came to Canada 
I sort of, and when I say briefly dated a guy, I mean very, very, very briefly. We went out twice with a guy I was working with. And the only reason I kind of even sort of entered into it was because I knew I was going to Canada. And I was going to Canada in 10 weeks. And I remember talking to my mum on the phone and my mum being like, look, you're leaving in 10 weeks. How bad could it go? (laughs) Famous last words. (laughs) And he was, it turns out, insanely obsessive and started deliberately like at work. He wouldn't stop like emailing me. And he he literally like got himself nearly fired, screwing up his job in an attempt to get my attention. And it got real weird real quick. And ever since then, I went, no, I'm never even entering into with someone I'm working with. That's so bizarre. I wouldn't even call that dating. That is going on two dates. On two dates. Exactly. I certainly, well, that's why I say I would certainly not call him an ex-boyfriend. Yeah. He was just a crazy person. <laughs> well, that doesn't stop someone from being an ex. So that's a good situation that you haven't had to wear. I- but I knew I was leaving. See, that was the thing for me. I was lucky because, like, I knew that even if it got real crazy, I could, like, I was leaving. I was not only just leaving the job, I was leaving the country. So that makes it a lot easier to put up with the psychotic, like, tendencies of this guy coming at me. You know, like, so, I mean, in a scenario like this, though, when you're actually in a band and you've worked so hard, I mean, you don't make it overnight in a band, you know. You have put so much work in. You have, it's not, it's not an office job, you know, like, where... I was in an office job, which I did not care about at all. You know, this year, I mean, what was Stevie Nicks going to do? Walk away from the band? You know, like what would, what was the option here? So, Well, in hindsight, maybe she could have, because didn't she have, out of all the band members, didn't she have the biggest hits on her own? She was doing well. Like she, but at the same time, like, I mean, it's hard. Like, I mean, look at, I mean, there's so many other examples of it. Sonic Youth, they broke up when they got divorced. Yeah. And then there's like no doubt with Gwen Stefani and they lived on. Some can deal better than others. I wonder if it's fine if there's still that creative frisson which allows you to, I guess, looking back on it, they were still able to express themselves. Mm. And I also think it firstly depends why you broke up. But I guess, I mean, sometimes breakups are just amicable. Sometimes breakups just happen. Um, But in other times it's brutal. But in the Fleetwood Mac case, you would think it would have been a little bit, I am not working with you. But apparently, the married couple in there, they wouldn't speak personally at all unless it was, like, directly about music. They would, could not, like, tolerate each other. So I guess the, what we're actually saying about them is that they were real professionals. Even though they were insane, they could still make it all about the work. They were very, very professional. Arguably more so than I would be. I think in that scenario, I'd be like, no, screw you. Get out. (laughs) I don't think I could feel. If someone cheated on me in that scenario, I would have trouble being, playing this song about me. I'd struggle with that. It's funny also listening, a lot of the... A lot of the guys' songs on, on the album are much bitchier than the women's. Like, the women's, there is a, a hint of reconciliation and about uh, kind of looking at things uh, a little bit wistfully. Yeah, a lot more kind of optimistic to the future, a lot more hopeful. And then go your own way is a bit sassy. One thing I always think's funny was that Don't Stop on that album, which is a song about breaking up a relationship, was actually Bill Clinton's campaign song. Oh, yeah. 
I think that is very funny in hindsight that he chose a song that was on Rumours. Well, it's pretty amazing that a lot of people will use music as a theme song and never really listen to the lyrics. It's like your mum would have loved Ronald Reagan using Born in the USA as a theme song and Bruce Springsteen saying, you know, this is the antithesis of what you're standing up for. And uh, well, you know, wasn't Trump only a couple of weeks ago dancing to Macho Man? Mm, um, he was. So, he had another one that was, he had the YMCA, which was weird. I think Trump was very, very limited because every time he played anyone's music, they sued him. <laughs> or like sent him a cease and desist letter. I think, please stop. <laughs> so he had very limited options by the end. <laughs> he was reduced to the village people and uh, probably thought those <laughs> those five upstanding uh, masculine men they, they work at the YMCA. That's a good place. He exclusively had Kanye West by the end. I think. <laughs> And it's not even Kanye in the end, so... Yeah, once you lose Kanye, it's all over. Once you lose Kanye, you got nothing. <laughs> I'm still pretty good friends with uh, ex-girlfriends, and uh, and I've worked with them as well, but it has you been... a really awkward situation that's turned good? Like a breakup that you've worked out? I think there was one relationship that it was, at the time, just a little bit tumultuous due to some circumstances that were out of our control, uh, mm. like there was a bit of distance and all that kind of stuff. And there was a point where I sort of had to say, I think the way we can get this back on track as a friendship is we just had, we need to actually have time apart to kind of just go off and everything's a little bit too intertwined at the moment. So if we go off and you just have a bit of time to breathe and then what you do is you kind of, what I think happens is if you dated someone like there's there's heaps of reasons that you dated them and there's heaps of reasons that you like them. So you just need to let the bullshit go and then you can just kind of get back to the core friendship. And then, and that's actually one of my closest friends now. I do think um, like when they say like, can exes ever be friends? I do think they can. I just don't think immediately. I think it is very difficult, if not impossible to immediately go from relationship to friends. I think you need to have a clean break, take them in, come back and then, recreate like start again on a new relationship as friends if that makes sense a relationship can keep evolving it doesn't it doesn't mean it has to be what it was before but it can turn into something new and look for the any guys out there who are thinking that seems like an impossibility two things one you just have to work at it and it's worthwhile and two the great thing is most men are shitheads and if you hang around long enough you'll rise in the (laughs) ex-boyfriend rankings and you'll find yourself at the top because heaps of men will disappoint your exes in the future and you'll just be the guy who is looked back on very fondly (laughs) very fondly that's it yeah no I definitely think like I don't have I wouldn't call any of my exes my friends, like, <laughs> at, all. at all. But I've also, like, I've dated some pretty crap guys. <laughs> What's been your longest relationship? See, that's the thing. My longest relationship's only been about a year. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so I've not had crazy long relationships. I'm not a big dater. So I would say, like, I don't think I've ever been, like, in love. Right. Interesting, so, yeah. Right? So I don't think I know them. And I still reckon I couldn't write songs with someone who cheated on me. <laughs> that actually 
actually loved somebody and they cheated on me. Like, oh, I admire Stevie Nicks and That's Lindsay so funny. And a lot of. I'm indifferent to this person, and I still don't think I can write a song with them. No, no, I don't even like them that much. Oh wow, that is. <laughs> I feel like that's, at first I was about to say, oh, that's a bit disappointing. And then there's a part of me that goes, no, no, that sounds like a bit of a relief, actually. In a weird way, there's a part of me that actually thinks that it'd be easier to work in a creative field, like than in like an office scenario or like if you were lawyers together or something, you know, where it's a lot, I feel like that would actually be a lot harder because I feel like if you were in a writer's room together, as much as that is very relationshipy and friendshipy. At the same time, I feel like you could almost like scapegoat onto the work, like, because you're almost living, like, for example, with writing music, you can kind of make it where just writing songs, you know, create, does that make, create distance almost from reality, even if it is life imitating art or art imitating life, you know? Speaking like someone who has never been in love. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, um, my own advice, just because I can't take my own advice, does not mean I don't dish it out. <laughs> I will give advice. I am, you know, like if if I don't give advice on things I don't know, who will? You're all very lucky to have me, big Thank squid you. listeners. If you need any relationship advice, you're going through a divorce, maybe you call me. Um, any help with parenting, call me. I don't have kids. Uh, I'll give you advice though. So. Well, this is it's it's not a bad thing. You don't come with any baggage. You can actually just <laughs> look at it scientifically. I am an objective person coming into this, saying that Fleetwood Mac nailed it. They created beautiful art. Stevie Nicks, I'm a fan. <laughs> she is an icon. There's been a lot of uh, oh, you know what? So. One little fact, uh, before I let you go, one little fact that I have to bring up, which will upset you because you love Stevie Nicks, but you know who one of her best friends is? Who? Harry Styles. <gasps> I did see them perform together. I saw. Like, I didn't watch it because I hate Harry Styles, but I saw it come up. Ben Elwood and I are up to recording for on our Nolan rewatch Dunkirk, and so yeah. I rewatched that last night. And you need me to if you guys are like fangirling too much, and you need me to drop in just for like two minutes, just to be like, no, I can do that. <laughs> no, I'm I'm really comfortable loving Harry Styles. I feel like this is <laughs> this is our our thing. We've got a, this is our back, this is our rumours album, is us creating a whole album about loving Harry. It'll be you and me doing a split bill and it'll just be about Harry Styles. Yeah, me loving him as a 48-year-old man and you, someone in in the right age group, not being a fan. Not, and I've never been a fan. I was never a One Direction fan. No, neither was I. But I was the right age group. Like, they came out. They hit it big when I was in high school. I was supposed to be a One Direction fan. <laughs> but, you know, like I was the right age to love Cold Chisel and I hated Cold Chisel. And you know what I love now? Cold Chisel. But the reason I hated Cold Chisel was when I was in high school. I was into bands like uh, They Might Be Giants and Elvis Costello and Bowie and Violent Femmes and stuff like that. And that was considered weird music. And then all the people around me were into Cold Chisel, so I hated Cold Chisel. And then one day I realised I'd never listened to Cold Chisel, and so I listened to them and I thought, oh, you know what? They're really good. good. (laughs) (laughs) Like early 30s, I came around to Chisel. (laughs) I don't think I have anyone like that that I like really actively. Like the only person I remember actively not liking, and I remember telling you this ages ago, was Avril Lavigne, only because my sister loved Avril Lavigne. 
she loved Avril Lavigne. So naturally I hated Avril Lavigne. Um, but I certainly, like, I mean, I don't have a problem with Avril Lavigne, but I'm certainly not a fan of hers now. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I'm, I would never go to her concert. Like, no, no shade on Avril, but <laughs> like, it's not, you know, I don't have anybody who I like hated and now love, you know? It might be Harry. Now it's going to be Harry. I'm going to, you're going to hit me up. <laughs> like, Maybe. <laughs> no. I'm not saying that you, ha- I'm not trying to change your opinion because I think it's wrong. I think I'm just trying to give you some, some tasty morsels of Harry Styles. Like you haven't watched Dunkirk. You know what it is? It might be, I'm not saying it's my favorite, but it might be Nolan's best movie. No, it's not. But it might be. <laughs> you haven't seen it. He's really good in it. No. He's a bit of, he's a bit of a coward in it. No, I refuse to believe it. I refuse. Have you watched Titanic yet? <laughs> No, not yet. No, no, no. I've been watch that. I don't have to watch Dunkirk. So that's all. all right. Well, I'll watch Titanic and uh, in in the next few weeks. But you, then you have to watch Dunkirk, and you have you have to open your heart to the possibility. I'm not saying that you have to agree, but you have to to the possibility that maybe at least in Dunkirk, he's really good. He annoys me on sight. Like he's he's one of those. Like I'm fully aware that my hatred of Harry Styles is not reasonable. Like I am very aware. It's, I reckon everyone has that one celebrity who they dislike on a level that is not appropriate for what they have done or like what I hold against Harry Styles. My hatred for him, like I should just like, I should not like him, but like I should not, my hatred of him, like I can't watch a TikTok with him in it in it because it's like one minute and it makes me viscerally angry. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> actually angry and that's too much for someone I've never met and will probably never meet. I felt that way for not forever but when I used to review uh, movies for Perth Radio which I did for 10 years the the actor who my eyes would just pop when I would see that I was about to see their new movie was Catherine Heigl and it was because I just no I just could not stand and it was because I had seen so many awful Catherine Heigl movies that it became a thing and now I do not feel that way at all because I don't see a film so why would I have that but I do understand that for a while I would see her pop up and I would immediately think of three movies that I had to sit through that I really hated oh which movie oh I don't know I can't even remember the titles there was something with Ashton Kutcher already that's a terrible sentence yeah right I've the only Catherine Heigl movie I can think of is 27 Dresses and I don't remember that being terrible I may have already had the Andy Heigl vibes by the time I saw 27 dresses it was just just a rom-com you know it was I mean I just remember it being a rom-com I don't remember but I I don't remember hating it I actually remember quite enjoying it (laughs) I'm gonna watch it again before Dunkirk I'm glad I brought it up and reminded you (laughs) um well we should let you go but uh what's coming up you've been doing some online shows that I saw yes I did um a quiplash show which was very fun last Saturday I believe the recording of that's coming up is that is that just a funny title or does that relate to what the show is because that is a good title that's what the show is we're playing we play quiplash the I don't know what that is uh, it's like a jukebox tv game where basically um there's six people or six players and you um, each you can play it on your phone. It's like an app, but you can also play it on your computer. It's um, and um, you get two questions per round and the questions will be like um, a weird thing to find on someone's gravestone. 
or something like it'll be like a question and you have to write a quippy response is the concept and, and the and then everyone has to vote but it's you and one other person gets the same question so then anonymously my answer and your answer will turn around and everyone has to vote not knowing who wrote what so we kind of played that with all comedians on zoom so you could hear us talking about each other's answers and such and see us for halloween and yeah there's three rounds of that and it's very fun it's a fun game to play with anybody but it's more fun when they're all you're playing with funny people i guess and um yeah it was a lot of fun um it was really cool to be involved and so has that gone up or is that going up the show was last weekend i believe the recording is coming up but i don't just follow me on twitter I say that every time. I'm posting really great Melania Trump Bachelorette content at the moment. Look, to be honest, you've been on a roll, and because of the time difference, you, you're the you you fill my feed when I get up. I'm like, oh yeah, sh- she's been working. Heard it here first, Australia. Um, I'll keep you up to date with the news in North America. That's <laughs> what I'm doing. We need someone we can rely on. Okay, thank you very much for catching up, and we'll catch up with you again soon. <laughs> See Thank you to Tom Gleason and Rachel Melanta for joining me today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to whichever feed suits you best. And if you have the time, a top review at Apple Podcasts is incredibly appreciated. If you want more information about upcoming episodes or even past episodes, you can join us at the Big Squid Facebook page. Or why don't you come and join our Closed Off Conversation page? It's a place that we talk about spoilers and all sorts of things. Anyone can join. We have a really funny and intelligent crew of regular listeners who also help contribute to the show. We have competitions. Well, we've had a competition so far. There'll be more competitions where you can win stuff off my desk and the people there get little opportunities to jump in on these things uh, a bit sooner. And we talk about all sorts of things, TV, movies, music, etc., whatever we're currently enjoying. So if you would like to come and hang out there, please do so. Don't forget, if you want to experience the live Big Squid show on December 13, head to giantdwarf.com. And if you'd like to see Tom Gleason and me performing stand-up, you can find details for that at comedy.com.au. I'll be back next week with Ben Elwood in tow as we continue our Christopher Nolan rewatch as we cover Interstellar. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think it might be our best podcast yet. Before we go, we always finish with a quote, and today I thought we could have a quote from the wonderful Sigourney Weaver. I worked hard and made my own way, just as my father had, and just, I'm sure, as he hoped I would. I learned from observing him the satisfaction that comes from striving and seeing a dream fulfilled. Until then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.